Hello once again, and welcome to our final episode of our special The Rating Room Revisited series. Jay, what have we got in store for this week? Thanks Andy, hello and welcome everyone. So, for the past few weeks we've been talking about each of the debuts for the James Bond actors. So it's only right that we finish with Daniel Craig. And his film obviously was Casino Royale. But this one is a little bit different, isn't it Andy? It is, because... The producers took the bold step of starting from scratch and giving the franchise a reboot. What did you think of this decision, Jay? Was this the right call? I think it's the right call. I like the black and white elements. I thought that was really good. I, I, I'm a bit hesitant here, Andy, because before we started to record, I was thinking in my head, how should you transition between different Bond actors? And obviously, you know, this is the reboot. We've had kind of reimaginings before. However, each each of the Bond actors that came before Daniel Craig was the same James Bond. And I was thinking, how can you do this? And I was thinking about Doctor Who. I said, Andy, I don't know if you're familiar with Doctor Who and how he kind of regenerates. And I was thinking, hmm, do you essentially have each new James Bond as a, a different James Bond and you reboot the franchise every so many films? Or do you go back to the older days before Daniel Craig and it's the same character. I'm a bit torn, Andy, if I'm honest. I I did like that they rebooted this. Um, could have they done it before? Maybe. We've we've mentioned that, obviously, Roger Moore uh, took a different direction. Timothy Dalton took it a different direction. But they've, they're all the same James Bond. So I do like what they've done. And... I know we said this, Andy, but the black and white thing was really cool, wasn't he? The the rookie Bond. Yeah, the introduction of a brand new James Bond in a brand new world, I think, was really, really well done. I, it's a bold decision I mentioned, but um, I think ultimately it paid off to make this decision. And I've I mentioned this several times. I, I liken it to Batman Begins and the complete, you know, it's a, it's a night and day. Um, between you know the likes of Clooney and Keaton and Kilmer versus Christian Bale, and this was like night and day in in many regards. When you compare with the likes of Moore and and Connery, it was it was a real. Um, what's the what's the phrase I'm thinking of? It was it was kind of like when in the nineties you had the the grunge scene, and then Nirvana came along and just kind of kicked the door down and everything changed musically. This is kind of what it was for the Bond franchise. You know, 40-odd years, they've got an established format, and then someone kicks the door down and says, no, we're not doing that anymore, we're doing it this way. And uh, it's a it's a, it's a ballsy decision, but one I, I think was the right one in hindsight. And the, the reboot the, wasn't the only thing that changed. The, 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 the physical look of James Bond obviously changed as well with Daniel Craig. Yeah, much more athletic, um, less about suave sophistication although you know there are still elements of that it was a a rough and tough James Bond the realism the grittiness the the whole tone of this film particularly I think really changed the way we saw James Bond now until a replacement is announced Daniel Craig I guess is technically still James Bond and has been for the last 17 years which is the longest run of anyone so Jay, what are your thoughts on Craig himself in the role of Bond? So when I think about Daniel Craig's Ron Andy, 
the first thing that comes to mind, and you've just mentioned it actually, is I think he's the most physical Bond. Even though Sean Connery and Lazenby was in very good shape, Daniel Craig is, is the most ripped, I would say. He's very physical. I don't know necessarily if that's good or bad. I think I prefer mine to be, my bonds to be a bit more, I would say, more Connery kind of physique. So he's he's very athletic and I just think, <laughs> I don't know why I'm thinking about it. I'm just thinking that Daniel Craig in my head where he's coming out of the sea <laughs> in his little shorts. I don't know why that came to my mind there. It, it stopped my fault there. <laughs> when I just... His little pervert shorts that he's wearing. <laughs> Your body smugglers. But um, this means, though, the, the positive um, bit of the physicality is that the, the sequences feel more realistic and intense. And again, the thing that jumps out to me um, with this bit is the is the chase scene. Um, you know, the um, free-running parkour bit. I think that's the bit that comes out with Daniel Craig. And I don't think... Obviously, obviously you could use stunt doubles. But I don't think any of the other actors probably could. Maybe George Lazenby, but I don't think any, any of the actors could have pulled that sequence off. I don't. Yeah, I, I can't imagine Connery or Moore running up that crane in that way. No, no. Maybe if it was on a ski mountain, Roger Moore could do it. But no, I think Daniel Craig is the only one that could have done that. I think as well, I've alluded to this last week when talking about Brosnan. Daniel Craig's tenure was emotionally, I think, the depth there. And I think out of all the films that we had, his character had the most development across his run of films as well. And there's a lot of complexity there. And correct me if I'm wrong, Andy, I think he must be the only actor that fell in love twice during his run of films. He had He's had two solid love interests. Um, with Vesper and Madeline as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think what this does, the Casino Royale in particular, is it sets the tone for why Bond is like he is. If we think back to, you know, a few weeks ago we talked about Doctor No on our revisited special. Doctor No, as a film, introduced James Bond, but he was he was almost already established in terms of who and what he is. You got straight away... Why he like why he is like he is this is this is James Bond this is what he does, whereas Casino Royale is is almost like a becoming James Bond because the the heartbreak that he suffers with the the Vesper experience I guess for lack of a better term really kind of you, at the end of the film you think ah oh, I understand now why he's like what he's like this is why James Bond is like James Bond. And I think this is the first time it was really touched upon as to a backstory almost pre-Bond, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And I think that's one of the the pros where you are writing films that have a, a an arc across films instead of the standalone films, say, of Roger Moore, um, for example. And there's different people will say they're, they're like standalone films. Other people will say they're kind of like that running theme across films. So that's one of the positives. And, and, you know, I know you mentioned this, Andy, but obviously we see Bond as a rookie in Casino Royale as well, opposed to 
Um, the later films where he's kind of world-weary spy as well, and he's obviously left um, the organisation. So that was nice to see the development of Daniel Craig's Bond. And going back to Brosnan, Craig's Bond as well did modernise um, the Bond um, franchise as well. And I think one of the good things it does, and I think it's happened in other Bond um, actors as well, it does incorporate political themes um, that are kind of relevant at that time as well. And I'm just thinking back to the film where the kind of evolving espionage as well, where they, they merge the organisations and um, obviously you find out that the, the bloke, uh, the, the, his name escapes my mind, um, is actually working for Blofeld. Yes, this is in the film Spectre, of course. And I know the actor's name is Andrew Scott. Um, I can only, when I think of him, I think of Moriarty from Sherlock. Yeah, I do. <laughs> That's his standout film, his MTV program. Absolutely, yeah. So, Andy, sorry, just a couple more things before I pass over to you because people will be fed up listening to me just rambling on. I personally, and I don't know if this is a hot take or not, I don't find Daniel Craig very charming. So when, like I said, I, I think Brosnan and Sean Connery are the most charming Bonds, I don't think he's very charming, Daniel Craig. I don't know if it's just because of, you know, his, the state of his love life during his run of films that he doesn't come across as as charming, but he's very brooding um, in the the films that he has. And... Again, you, 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 I think you're going to probably argue this point because I know you rate the Daniel Craig films highly. With Brosnan, I mentioned last week the inconsistency. And I think Dan, um, Daniel Craig's films, I think when you look across them, in my rankings, you've got two very good films. And, oh, sorry, No Time to Die, I've ranked very good as well. And then for me, there's the two that's not so good. So a bit of inconsistency, but obviously like George Lazenby only did one film. I don't think any James Bond actor from memory, you could say, didn't put out any kind of inconsistency. You could argue Sean Connery films were highly rated, but there, there's an element of inconsistency across all of them, I suppose. Personal taste, I guess. I, I, I get your point. I think I, I rate them all very, very highly, though. So even the low points for Craig were still pretty high for me. Brooding's a good word. He pouts a lot, doesn't he? He's got a bit. He's got a bit of a pout, Craig has. A bit of almost, almost bordering on duck face at times. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, and I suppose my last two points, Andy. Brooding kind of leads on to the darker um, tone in the films as well, which I don't mind, but. If you're thinking about the audiences that we were talking about in the Roger Moore revisited episode, people that like the Roger Moore lightheartedness probably didn't necessarily like the Daniel Craig era. So, you know, I think there's going to be a bit of difference there. But my last point is, what what do you prefer in a Bond? Do you prefer the classic Bond or kind of Daniel Craig's interpretation of Bond? Which one, and obviously, I know you just mentioned there that you rate the Daniel Craig films um, highly. Um, I did not. I, I rated them highly, but um, there's films higher. But he, he is, you know, a good Bond. 
So I don't know if you had any kind of comments to my comments or what are your thoughts generally about Daniel Craig as Bond? I I like the the setup of the films and the fact that they all flow together. Albeit they kind of forced it upon us in a way. I think really the first two films flow together and the final two films flow together, but then they shoehorned them in in such a way that all five were were continuous. So you know they've they've played a little bit with the creative license there. I I just think at the time Craig came along, it needed something new. I think Die Another Day was a film that left a bad taste in many people's mouth because it just kind of it took everything too far. The silliness, the gadgets, the just it was preposterous at times. And if they'd have continued in that vein, would we still be talking about Bond as a, as a thing now, or would they have thought, you know what, this has reached its its course we need to end things so i think it came along at the right time when reboots were all the rage and i think this was a, an absolutely fantastic way to debut inconsistency i do disagree slightly but i think i understand what you mean because he does change quite a lot from film to film in some regards you know he ends this film pretty cold and remorseless he ends his final film pretty cold but for different reasons (laughs) but his his emotional state is is very very different isn't it by the time that rolls around but i i see it more of as an evolution as opposed to an inconsistency but that's just my interpretation ultimately for me i think he's the best bond you compare to sean connery i understand why people may not agree with that because I, you know, I still think of Connery as Bond, but I just think of them as two different Bond universes. And I wonder as well how much people, particularly you know, the Bond superfans out there, if you've read the books, you've already got an image in your head of who and what James Bond is. So then which actor most resembled the books? I tend not to to do that with, not just with Bond, because I've not really read many of the novels or anything, but if I think of a tv show or a film and compare it with the equivalent book i'm i can quite easily separate the two as being separate worlds i'm not one of these people who think well that's not how it is in the book so therefore it's wrong and i wonder if there's an element of that to it as well yeah valid points andy valid points is there anything else that you want to discuss about daniel craig because like you said he is your favorite bond before we kind of sign off and let listeners know what to expect yeah, in the I've, next I've, week or so. I've waxed lyrical about Daniel Craig's Bond for many, many weeks now, and you can check out in our archives the other episodes relating to Daniel Craig, and you'll hear just what I think about him. Next week, we've got a brand new episode of The Rating Room coming up. Now, I've put in brackets in my notes. We need a name for this. But it's going to be all new The Rating Room. We are going to be talking about sequels. That's going to be one of the things we're talking about. We may even throw in some TV ratings and rankings as well, rather than films. So check that out. And some other other things that we've never tried before. So it is going to be all new, the rating room. And then, you know, we're approaching uh, Christmas. So for the next few weeks after that, we're going to talk about some Christmas films. So stay tuned over the coming weeks as the holiday season approaches. We're going to get a little bit festive here on the rating room. And, you know, check out our social media, YouTube, 
Twitter, Threads, MySpace, Bebo, all the usual stuff. Because we're going to have various clips, news, information, all over our socials. So keep up to date with all of that and you'll find out what's going on over the coming weeks and months. I love a Christmas film, Andy, so I'll be looking forward to that and I will be watching lots of Christmas films between the episodes that we're covering as well because I do love Christmas films. Me too. yippee ki <laughs> Indeed. So that's all to come. Andy has covered that brilliantly. But right now, let's just focus back on this episode. So we're taking it back to the beginning all over again, the reboot. This is season one, episode 21, Casino Royale. Ahoy there, my name is Steve Barnes and I invite you to listen to my TV recap podcast. It's called Sweet Child of Time, 1899 Dark and Wheel of Time TV Recaps. I'm recapping 1899 with Nate of the band Voidmaster. I'm recapping Dark with Lindsay Dunn. She's a film and TV critic. And I'm doing Wheel of Time currently with James the Marshland Monster. TV up. Audio engineer and rapper, not on TV, but we'd like to see him on TV one day. Join us at Sweet Shot of Time. Listen to our recaps. They're about an hour long each. We have a lot of fun. Join us. Bye. May you always find water and shade. Bye-bye. Episode 21, Casino Royale. Recently promoted to double O status, James Bond takes on his very first mission. He must face Le Chiffre, a mysterious private banker to the world's terrorists. Along with Treasury agent Vesper Lind and Bond's contact in Montenegro, Bond takes part in a high-stakes poker game set up by Le Chiffre to recover a huge sum of his client's money that he lost in a failed plot that the British spy took down. That is Casino Royale in a nutshell, Jay. But what did you remember about this before re-watching it recently? So Andy, I've got to do a bit of a disclaimer here. So with the Daniel Craig Bonds, me and the missus have only seen each of the films once, apart from Casino Royale, I think we've only seen twice. Whereas, you know, we've discussed before, the, the other Bonds I've seen quite a few times. So, and you know, obviously this one was done not you know it was, it was done in a naughty so it wasn't too far so i think my memory's good but like i said i've only seen this twice so that's my disclaimer andy just in case you start picking you know i, I haven't really remembered much so i remember the obvious things so it's daniel craig's first film um the franchise was rebooted i did remember mads mickelson was in it because he's an actor that's been in a number of other programs and films that i've seen also remembered the I would say infamous torture chair scene. And I also remember the, the car crash leading to that. But apart from, I don't really remember many plot details. I also remember the, the parkour chase at the beginning and the character being called Mr. White because obviously he appears in more than one Daniel Craig film and Vesper as well. And... I remember there being a shower scene 
apart from like little snippets, I couldn't remember the actual main plot of Casino Royale. So what about you, Andy? Was your young mind better than my aging mind? Slightly better. I think everything that you mentioned, I remembered. Uh, I also remember there was a kind of a fight scene in a bathroom right at the start, which kind of explained how Bond came to be double O. There's obviously the poker game, which I mentioned in the summary of the movie, and a line about how it nearly killed him. I remembered Vesper, and I remember that Vesper betrayed Bond. Spoiler alert for those who haven't seen the movie to the end. And again, some line that he made, like, the bitch is dead. Uh, I also remember there was a distinct lack of gadgets. In Certainly in comparison to previous Bond films, there was uh, little to no gadgets. Uh, the torture chair scene that you mentioned earlier was one of the more infamous scenes from the film. And then I also remember uh, Daniel Craig emerging from the sea in the same way that Halle Berry did in the previous film, and, of course, Ursula Andress did way back in 62 in Doctor Now. So, so quite a few details, points. Uh, the plot itself, sort of, I remembered, but, but it was more scenes and moments and characters that were my memory as well. Yeah, because I, I didn't remember anything about the the money and, you know, Le Chiffre losing the money and therefore needing the the poker game. So I didn't remember any of that at all. So we, we've, you know, we said in previous podcast episodes as well, sometimes certain things we might, might remember more things and might be certain pot, plot strands that we remember. So I did quite enjoy watching this in terms of not remembering much about the actual film in terms of the actual plot. Yeah, I think one thing I would call out is, we've talked about the fact that Daniel Craig rebooted the franchise, so we were effectively starting again. And in my head, although I've seen this film five, six times maybe, I had in my head that it was very different from the other Bond films. And in some ways it is. You know, it, it is it's a complete reimagination. But actually there's quite a lot of staples of the original Bond franchise that remained through. There were still levels of humour, there were still some one-liners, there was still... It was still very much a Bond film. It wasn't... Uh, I've probably mentioned this, I don't know if I've mentioned it on, on air or not, but my my closest comparison would be the Batman franchise. When Christian Bale took over with Batman Begins, that was effectively a reboot, and it was far removed from what we'd seen the likes of uh, Keaton and Val Kilmer and George Clooney in the role. This was akin to that, but it didn't lose the authenticity of Bond or the uh, the original charm quite as much as I as I seem to remember it did. So it was it was a nice mix, I thought. I agree, Andy. I agree. And let's get into a little bit more detail. So we're collecting various pieces of information throughout. So let's start with villains. Hang on to your hats because this is a long list. So we have Le Chiffre, we have Mr. White, Alex Demetrios, Carlos Nicolich, Stephen Urbano, Malaka Danzo, Adolf Gettler, and Kratt. And just the two Bond girls, Vesperlind and Solange Demetrios. And the theme song was sung by Chris Cornell, and it was called You Know My Name. And the opening credits, so this one was very different so 
we've got Bond appearing throughout the credits here. When we've got, like previous films, so there are some kind of staples in terms of the, you know, the, the normal Bond franchise. So you've got your cards, you've got your fight scenes as well, you've got silhouettes of Bond fighting various goons. You also had the different type of card deck suits as well. So you had like the hearts, clubs, diamonds and spades. You had the bullet holes, which are quite like making the 007 appearing on one of the playing cards. And then you had these targets appear in the opening credits as well, which I think from memory, they, they, I think they might have spawn to kind of represent uh, like roulette as well. Um, and one thing that was surprising was that there were no sexy naked dancing models in this one so that's obviously a change to the the previous films that we've seen and i think andy i think this might be the first time that we've not had dancing sexy ladies since dr no i think dr no might be the only one from memory do you do you recall that seems to be the case doesn't it i i can't think of an opening credits without them other than the two, you know, the one we just watched and Doctor Now, so far at least. Yeah, so we had we've got the the original Bond, you know, Doctor Now, and then the the rebooted one with no um, dancing models, and the all important body count. So this is James Bond kills only, and eleven, and obviously we can see how that ranks later on when we go through the rankings and ratings. Gadgets. I mentioned lack of gadgets. Uh, the list is this. A GPS tracker and a defibrillator in the Aston Astro- Martin. Let me do that again. A GPS tracker and the defibrillator. I <laughs> can't say that word. A GPS tracker and the defibrillator in the Aston Martin. And that's it. In terms of Bond introducing himself as Bond, James Bond, two hours and 14 minutes. Um, right at the end of the film, in fact, which is quite an interesting time especially for a debuting bond because i think we've seen in the past it's generally early on so you know who who it is we're talking about but no such thing with craig he left it right to the end Uh, we do have the drinking of martini but we have no hat wearing or throwing in this film so jay let's move on to the next question what was your favorite scene i'm going to cheat here andy so i've picked two scenes but they're very different so I've picked the the beginning bit, so not the opening credits, the, the parkour chase scene I thought was very good. Very, very good, actually. It was... Um, I like the different elements, you know, with the the snake, mongoose, and then you get the transition to the actual chase. I thought that was really, really good. And very authentic in terms of it wasn't, as far as I'm aware, I think minimal special effects. In terms of that, you could tell it was either, you know, done by a stuntman or um, Daniel Craig obviously did did some bits. So I thought that was really good. But then changing, you know, slowing down the pace, I thought the card playing scenes between Bond and Le Chiffre was very good as well. And the, I don't know if banter is the right word, but the, where they were both kind of scoping each other out and trying to, I don't know, manipulate maybe. The, the the situation I thought that was sometimes quite intense as well. So I, I picked you know a really good chase scene and then a more intense slower pace scene there. But I thought those two are the ones that really stood out for me. You know in in Casino Royale, 
What about you, Andy? Did you did you pick something similar? Or did you go for something completely different? So last week when we talked Dino of the Day, I think we were both struggling to think of a favourite scene because it felt like they were lacking. I had the opposite problem this time. There were so many to choose from that I really enjoyed. I think the two you mentioned could absolutely be on the list. Uh, the the tension and the drama of the of the poker table um, was was fascinating. It was really quite captivating as well. But I went for a fight scene in the stairwell between Bond and Abano and his henchmen. There were a number of fight scenes that I thought were really good, but this one just stood out as being really quite edge of your seat stuff. It was very gritty. It was very dark. It was very real. And with Vesper being on site, witnessing everything that went down and, you know, was in imminent danger at all points. It just added that extra level of drama to it. Uh, So that just edged it for me. But probably half a dozen or so scenes that could have easily made top of the pile for me. Uh, Next up, how many times did you reach for your phone? So, Andy, I was the model student again here. So I was zero times reaching for my phone. I think, I don't know how many episodes this is in a row now, Andy, but I was very um, disciplined. And... I don't know if it's the same with you, but I feel that I'm more focused when we have a new actor playing Bond. I want to try to really focus and really, not so much analyse, but I want to make sure I get really loads of notes done so we can talk about it in a podcast. And I'm really looking in, in terms of, you know, a new actor's come on board. So I don't know if it's going to be zero for the remaining Daniel Craig films. I know it's been zero for the last few episodes at least, uh, maybe all the way through the Pierce Brosnan era. So um, I'm I'm being well behaved. What about you, Andy? Yeah, I think I have I've known to have a cheeky Google here and there to you know see who someone is. But this time around, I was just so into it, I didn't bother with my phone at all. So I just I watched it intently. Took quite a few notes for me actually, um, and I, I know obviously we're going to get into those as we go through the pod. But I was I was fully on board with this. So. No need for the phone in hand. Uh, But of course, as always, here on The Rating Room, we have to talk the all-important rating. So Jay, out of 10, what was the number you gave this? So Andy, for me, it was 8 out of 10. I think it was a a very strong opening by Daniel Craig. They obviously rebooted the franchise, and I think it worked really well. And I liked that it wasn't just all action compared to the, the Bosnian films you had the like narrative driving the story as well and it wasn't just purely how the Bosnian films tended to kind of end with a lot of action um, aspects to it so for me I think it's a respectable 8 out of 10 and, and later on when we talk about the rankings we can see where actually that lands in my table what about you Andy? For me this was a fantastic opening straight in with a 9 out of 10 and I've been Certainly early in the series, notoriously stingy with my marks. This this just captivated me like no other Bond film has so far. And I was thinking back to when I watched it at the cinema some 16 years ago, I guess it would be now. And what, I can't remember if I knew beforehand that it was a reboot or whether I found out as I watched it. I can't remember what research I'd done beforehand or whether I just wanted to watch it like without any expectations and I remember coming out of the cinema being absolutely blown away by what I'd just seen like I decided at that point 
this was the best Bond film ever. This was amazing. 16 years later, obviously, I've, I've matured slightly. I've put on weight. I've got more grey hair. You know, my, my thought process is a little bit different. So I, I did watch this with, you know, more critical eyes. And, you know, as we've done with all of the films so far, I wanted to give it a fair shake to make sure that I wasn't hyping it up. But for me, it was still holds the test of time. So 9 out of 10. It was it was near perfect. Um, but that's just two people's opinions. We need more opinions. And I think you've got two more people that you want to bring into the conversation here. As every week, let's start with your wife. What did she make of this? Yeah, so the wife, you know, I've said in previous episodes, she's been looking forward to the Bosnian films. And then when we started watching the Bosnian films again, she realised it was actually, actually Daniel Craig films that she enjoyed. So... Her comment was, it's a 180 degree turn on the Bosnian films. When she told me that, I was thinking, oh, I wish she said 360 degrees, because then I could say that in the podcast, and then I could just like, mock her. But no, she said 180 degree turn on the Bosnian films. She said they've gone back and rebooted the franchise. She said the Bosnian films started to feel like a, more of a spy spoof film, which... You know, you could argue Die Another Day was, and for me, The World Is Not Enough, which I know, obviously, you, you score very differently to me. She also said, and this is, a, this is a reoccurring theme, Andy, for her, the fight, ste- the fight scenes were still too long. She said they were slightly too long compared to the previous Bond films. However, they were more watchable and more create, creative in, in terms of the fight scenes. And then I said to her, because she's not keeping a list of the, the, the 21 films we've watched. So she's not keeping, you know, in terms of an actual ranking. So I said to her, where would you rank it roughly though? And she said, oh, definitely top five Bond films so far. Um, so she was impressed. She, I'm trying to think, I think she was on her phone only a few times. You know, she was she was paying attention. She did say to me as well that... Um, Daniel Craig is a favourite Bond as well. So I think she appreciated the the scene that you mentioned earlier about Daniel Craig coming out of the water. So I think she appreciated that. So yeah, she, she really enjoyed it. And I've, I've mentioned it in previous episodes before, Andy. You know, we, we've done... This is our 21st recording of the, the main season. And there's been times during the... The, you know the podcast season where I've been rewatching it with the wife, where she's been flagging, and I'm thinking, oh, is, is she going to dip out? But she, you know, she's been staying there. I've, I mentioned a few times, you know, where she she's dropped off, um, but she has, yeah, she really enjoyed Casino Royale. She did mention something, and maybe I might pick it up when we we do the rankings. But she did mention like um, Sean Connery as well, saying it was kind of like the Sean Connery era, you know, had have gone back to pre-gadgets and everything like that. So I thought that was, you know, she's paying attention, you know, in terms of watching it. And actually, because she like mentioned like Goldfinger and, you know, it it was like up there with like the earlier Bonds, which surprised me because she likes action films. So she likes like the Fast and Furious. She watches a lot of where you can kind of turn off your brain and just watch a film for like an hour and a half and it's just pure action. She loves those kind of films. So when she said to me the other night, oh, you know, this is like as good as the early Bond films, which I, I found very surprising because obviously, like we mentioned in earlier podcast episodes, 
the early Sean Connery ones were more spy espionage kind of movies opposed to action films. So before we move on to my other verdict, Andy, is there anything you want to say about your wife verdict this week? So she's not rewatched it with me. She's, we're still she's still on the hook for No Time to Die, but she didn't rewatch it with me this time round. She has watched it with me in the past, some fourteen, fifteen years ago it must be now since since we watched it. And she didn't she didn't really take to it that much. She I I I made her watch it because she's a fan of the Jason Bourne films and I thought this was a good comparison and she just always had in her head that oh I don't like Bond, Bond's boring and sexist and blah 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 blah. Um but she agreed to watch Casino Royale with me many, many years ago and uh, the jury's out on whether she actually enjoyed it or not. Um, but I'm still working on her. I've still got that commitment that she's going to partake in at least one viewing, this being no time to die, but for the time being, she's still out of the game. So, before we move on, Andy, I think I alluded to it in the last episode that my teenage son might be watching Casino Royale. I think I did. Did I mention that, Andy? I think you did, yeah. You've. I think you also mentioned many, many episodes ago that he intended to watch a film with you and then was playing on his Xbox instead. Yes, he played Minecraft my, or something. It so, might have been the Lazenby film, if memory serves me correctly. Blimey. i tell you what, Andy, our listeners, do, you know, we're in episode 21, and our listeners will probably can see my deterioration in my memory as the season probably no progresses because I'm struggling to remember some of the stuff we've discussed but yeah um so my my teenage son was going to watch a previous one ended up playing Minecraft with his friends anyway so um as as everyone knows me and Andy watch these films on a weekly basis so throughout the week Andy I've been saying to my, my teenage son you still watching it yeah yeah dad I am watching it so I've been you know checking on the day that we decided to watch it, he said, yes, I'm going to watch it. And then he, he comes, we, we watch it as, you know, the three of us. I've got a daughter as well, but she's too young, so she didn't watch it. And he he has to wear glasses to watch, you know, he has to wear glasses all the time. So he basically started to lay down and took his glasses off. So I went, whoa, 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 what are you doing? How are you going to watch the film if you can't see it? He said, no, Dad, I, I can see it. So he's he's 14, and I don't know this is the same with all 14-year-olds, but he favours action films. So like the missus, he, he loves the Fast and Furious, and it's, you know, like you go to Bond, to watch Bond with your dad, it's a thing that the missus does with Martino's son. Every time a Fast and Furious film comes out, they go to the cinema and watch it. It's a little thing that they do. So he, he said the fight scenes were, were good, especially the parkour at the beginning. And then, you know, he said, you know, some other bits, he said, you know, it was interesting. He he watched it all, you know, he, he sat there munching on a galaxy bar while watching the film. And then when I said to him at the end, oh, like, you know, I said to the missus, you know, your wife heard it. And then he said, what are you doing? I said, no, I'd like to get, you know, a bit of feedback. And I mentioned it on the, on the pod with Andy. And he said, I don't want to do that. I said, come on, I'm, you know, just give me some lines. So he said, you know, what I just told you. And then he said at the end, best film, best Bond film he's watched. And obviously this is the only Bond film he's watched. 
So technically, he is correct. <laughs> but it's a typical Kanesaki comment from a, a teenage boy. But he did say he will watch another Bond film. So that is positive. That does sound good. Welcome to the show, Jay's teenage son. And uh, I like the I like the line. That's a bit of a Bond sense of humour with the one liner there to say it's the best film he's watched. So he's uh, he's learning. It's good to hear. Yeah, and like you done with your wife, Andy. You know, previously, I think this is a good entry point for people to come into the franchise that might not necessarily like to watch older films. I agree. I think the the Craig era is in many ways standalone. And we'll discuss those points as we as we move over the next five episodes, including this one. But let's uh, let's dig a little bit deeper, shall we? So some facts and figures. The runtime for this two hours twenty four minutes, which is long compared to previous Bond films. I think it might be the longest one yet. We will double check that at the end when we go through our ratings and rankings. But that feels like a long one to me. Released in 2006, and we have a return for the director, Martin Campbell, who took the helm for this film. So, as always, I like to kick off talking about the money. The budget with this film was $102 million, so that is actually a decrease compared to the previous film, which is obviously Die Another Day that we watched last week, of $40 million, which I found a bit surprising really so this film came out four years after die another day but they stripped out 40 million dollars from the budget there it also makes it cheaper than the world is not enough and tomorrow never dies which when doing the research andy i was really surprised about that i know there's less gadgets and as we mentioned in die another day they had a lot of gadgets but also kind of futuristic elements to it so maybe that's where they, they managed to save some of the money this film was a lot more gritty as well, so maybe that helps bring the budget down. I don't know how much Daniel Craig was paid compared to Pierce Brosnan as well. Maybe that saved some money there. So I did think that was interesting. And how did that translate in terms of box office stats? So at the time, it took just shy of $600 million. So that's $595 million worldwide in terms of box office performance. And when you adjust it to today's money, that's roughly $850 million. So that means at the time, this was the best performing Bond film in the franchise. So they they rebooted the franchise. They've took money out of the budget, Andy. And then they still get the best performing Bond box office performance. So they're doing something, right? They absolutely are. I'm not sure about License to Kill. I think it should be a license to print money with those kind of figures. Uh, some some more tidbits. And this this one... I wasn't aware of, um, but due to copyright issues related to the ownership of Thunderball, the organisation which Mr. White is part of is not actually named Spectre, and I don't know if it actually gets a name at all throughout the film, but there's certainly mention of an organisation that he is part of, but there's no mention of the word or name Spectre, and I wasn't aware that that was due to copyright issues, but we have talked about some of the the legal wranglings in previous episodes. Um, so obviously the the legal stuff has not gone away yet, if, if it ever does go away. Another point that we can call back to a previous episode, so let's go all the way back to episode 5 for You Only Lives Twice, and we mentioned an actress 
who played Ling. Well, the actress in question was also in Casino Royale, playing Madame Wu, some 39 years later. So that is, uh, that is recycling of actors taken to an extreme. That is, Andy, correct me if you're wrong, that is a bigger age gap uh, you've been alive, isn't it, Andy? I, as at this recording, I'm a lean yes. 37, um, even if my face doesn't suggest that age. <laughs> but no, that is, a, that is a brilliant bit of casting, that is. Absolutely. And there was a cameo by the director, Martin Campbell himself. He played the gasoline truck driver uh, that was killed in the attempted plane bombing throughout the film. So uh, he's put himself quite literally in the firing line there, hasn't he? he? He did, Andy. And I wonder if you get paid twice. Do you get a directing fee and then a, an acting cameo fee? Obviously, cameo people, I assume, don't get paid much. I wonder if he did two pay packets there. Double the work, double the money. That's how it's got to be, surely. Got a talent fee and then a production fee. And if not, somebody pay the man twice. He deserves it. <laughs> they, they, they've got enough money to do it, as we've mentioned in the box office stats. So talking a bit more about the director, Martin Campbell. So it's, it's interesting because he's, he's obviously directed the first Brosnan film and the Daniel Craig film now. So he's had two... He's broken in two new Bond actors. I thought that was quite interesting. Apparently, Campbell has been offered the director job numerous other times as well, but he's declined, so he's only done the two Bond films so far in the franchise. Maybe he will come back to do the next Bond actor, Andy. Maybe, maybe who knows? He might get that phone call again. And this one I thought was, I'm going to say interesting, and the wife keeps moaning that we keep using interesting too much, Andy, but I'm going to say this is interesting because... I didn't pick this up in watching the film, but I know you did because you made a note about it. So Richard Branson makes an appearance in the airport going through security. Branson's cameo was actually cut out of the in-flight version shown on British Airways. Obviously, Branson is the creator of you know Virgin. So the Virgin Atlantic aircraft also has the you know the, the logo on the tail fin. They also kind of blanked that out on the British Airways um, in-flight. So I thought that was a bit petty, Andy, if I'm being honest. But, you know, I don't know what the relationship... Obviously, it's competitive between Virgin and British Airways, but it seems a bit petty <laughs> to to um, cut that out and, you know, doing a bit of... Um, I can't think of the technical term where they kind of blanket what's the... You know, when it's too graphic and they kind of use the they're digitalized have they or they're just censored yeah. it completely yeah yeah so they just i thought that was a bit yeah a bit petty there yeah petty is the key word um just to add to that as well if we think back to die another day there is a scene where brosnan is flying to london and i think he's on a british airways flight um so what's happened in the the four years in between films that the bond production crew have decided to go against british airways and over to virgin you know what it is, Andy. You had the Pierce Brosnan films, which had so many different product placements, advertising. Now we get to Daniel Craig. Obviously, Virgin have shown the money. They've put in more money, I'm betting, in the old product placements, I'm guessing. Could be true, although the budget would suggest otherwise, because they're £40 million down. But 
But there you go. Another random factoid from the film is Le Chiffre. He's got an injured eye. Weeps blood. It's never really explained. That's it's not. It's, sorry, Andy. Sorry to cut in. It's not explained. I've not wrote this down, but, but I can't remember what Mads Mikkelsen said. Apparently, he came up with a backstory, but it obviously wasn't in the film. But in terms of, you know, some actors might use method acting or, you know, in terms of the character, apparently he came up with some kind of backstory of how Le Chiffre got his injured eye. Wonder what that could have been. I mean, there's mention of the injury. He alludes to it, but never how it came about, what caused it, who caused it. So there's a there's a gap there that needs to be filled. The rain room. But let's move on to some goofs and continuity errors. So at Miami Airport, you see numerous CSA planes, which is the Czech Airlines. Czech Airlines offer no direct flights to Miami. However, Prague Airport, where the scene is shot, is full of CSA planes. So I guess that's more of a factual error rather than a continuity error. But for for any plane aficionados out there, I'm sure you spotted that one yourselves. Yeah, so I've just got one this week. So if a house collapses into the waters of a Venice canal, after the collapse, the water would be really murky and therefore on the water the visibility would be pretty much zero but obviously we have the end scene where there's a bit that takes part underneath the water and you can tell it's just really really clear like if it was filmed in some kind of swimming pool you know the bit with Vesper and Bond we'll cut this bit out potentially but I've been to Venice and it's a shit hole so <laughs> there's no way the water is clear yeah and one more thing from my side Jay before we move on uh, Bond He's being tortured in the seatless wicker chair. And you see on one one shot, there's uh, the right-hand side of Bond's face, there's blood, there's blood running in a kind of an unbroken line down his face. And then the next shot, you see that the blood has been smudged. But then the next shot after that, the blood is, is running unbroken again. And it happens a few times throughout. So obviously they've filmed that multiple times, but they've not quite got the blood matching each time. So, a slight continuity error there for those with a keen eye. The rain room. So, let's get into the movie. So, we always discuss a bit before kind of like the music that kicks off. So, we're starting in Prague, which is in the Czech Republic. And the film opens in black and white. That is not something I remembered, Andy. No, me neither. But I think it does add to the purpose of the opening scene. One point... At this stage, there's no gun barrel. There isn't a gun barrel yet, and we will find out why in shortly. But that is that is a good point, and obviously something that viewers of James Bond will be obviously aware of, that there's no gun barrel, and that's a very strange not to have the gun barrel. So Bond has tracked down an MI6 section chief called Dryden, who has been selling secrets to enemies for a profit. There's a bit of back and forth here between Bond and Dryden as well. Dryden mentions the need to have two kills to become a double O agent. A question I had at this point, Jay. Is this the first time we've had actual confirmation of what it takes to become a double O? Because I felt felt like we know it, but did we know it? I don't recall, Andy, it being mentioned before in terms of the criteria. It might be, but like I've 
mentioned at the <laughs> the earlier my memory isn't the greatest but when i saw your comment there about the you know confirming the actual requirements it did make me think and i was thinking through you know the films that we've obviously re rewatched over the last few weeks months i i can't remember actually i don't i don't, I don't know if it's ever explicitly mentioned i mean if any listeners out there listening and can you know come back to me and andy and say you know it was mentioning this film and at this point you know we we will hold our hands up and maybe we weren't paying as much attention as we thought andy maybe we were checking our phones at that point when when the that important detail was mentioned in previous film so moving on this scene cuts between bond and dryden in the office and also bond and fisher fighting in the toilet so i thought that was quite good so we're still in black and white bit at the moment yeah we've kind of got bond in the office kind of reliving what had obviously happened previously in the in the toilets with fisher and uh so i think they're talking about the actual killing of fisher and dryden's taught him bond and he says something like the second is but then gets cut off by bond shooting him in the head and bond replies considerably and then it cuts back to the bathroom scene where you think fisher is dead but i think he gets up or he's starting to move and then bond turns around and shoots him but as he turns around and shoots him it becomes the gun barrel sequence which i thought was really really cool how that was done so he wasn't walking on screen he was already on screen but he turned and shot fisher and it became the gun barrel very very cool and i thought it was a, a an incredible opening to the film actually very short very sweet maybe the best open ever even though it was only three four minutes long we've we've had, obviously had some really good openings andy over the last few weeks you know golden eye the the dam scene we've mentioned we we had the scene last week in die another day as well and you know when you mentioned about the the gun barrel i i know it's not exactly the same and it's slightly different but I thought back to Die Another Day where Brosnan being caught and tortured then transitioned into the music and then you got the, you know, the music and the opening credits is kind of explained in a time jump. With this, it was similar in terms of you had the, the story and then it transitioned into the gun barrel. So I, it was kind of similar. I know it wasn't the opening credits, but it was the gun barrel bit. So quite like that, how they used the, the actual story to kind of then transition into the gun barrel. Yeah, it was very, very creative, very original. I loved it. Yeah, so they rebooted the franchise and straight away, Andy, you could tell it, it just feels different. One thing that doesn't feel different is David Arnold actually has returned to the franchise and this is his fourth Bond film now. So even though they rebooted, they, they have brought some of the regulars back. As mentioned earlier, Chris Cornell sings You Know My Name title song. Cornell was the lead singer of Audio Slave and Soundgarden, two bands that I know nothing about. Just had to hold my hand up there, Andy. And You Know My Name is the first theme song sings Octopussy to use a different title than the film. And also, this song doesn't make a reference to the title of the film, and this has only happened three other times. I would ask you which three other times, Andy, but me and you have the script in front of us. So any listeners out there, if you want to kind of 
just guessed before I mentioned this now which other three films this um, has also happened. And it's actually Doctor No on a Majesty's Secret Service and Octopussy. Someone's turning that into a quiz question as we speak. <laughs> um, what was also interesting, curious you may say, um, the title track, You Know My Name, doesn't actually feature on the official soundtrack album. It was released separately as a single. Peaked at number 7 in the UK singles charts and 79 in the US Billboard Hot 100. But I would have assumed that all title tracks would have appear on the soundtrack of that film. So I'm very surprised to, to hear that it's not part of the soundtrack. And the song is very, very different to previous Bond songs. You know, we talked a bit about the credits earlier. There's heavy use of graphics and fight scenes, card suits, no girls in the credits. But the song is is more of a, a rock song as opposed to the more ballad or pop-infused entries we've had of the past. And obviously we're going to talk about the rankings of the, f- the theme song later on so we can see what me and Andy thought of the, the song later on in the pod. So let's get into the film again now. So we start off in Uganda and we meet a couple of characters for the first time. So we, we see Stephen Obano who um, Andy mentioned earlier, who is the lead of the Lord Resistance Army. Um, we also meet Lashifa for the first time, and he's a private banker to various terrorist groups around the world. Lashifa is played by Mads Mikkelsen as well, and the deal has been set up by Mr. White. So that straight away you've got, I don't know if you say three key players, but you've definitely got two key players here. Stephen Obano is obviously a, a villain, but you you introduced Mr. White. Well, you don't you don't get much from Mr. White um, at the moment. He's kind of he's being teased because obviously he appears in other Daniel Craig films. But Mads Mikkelsen is there, and Mikkelsen has been in a number of different films and TV shows. He's played Doctor Hannibal Lecter in the Hannibal TV series. He's appeared in The Hunt, Doctor Strange, Rogue One, and Fantastic Beast: The Secrets of Dumbledore. And Andy, I've only seen three of those i've seen a hannibal tv series which is very very good i've seen doctor strange and i've seen rogue one i've not seen maz mickelson in the hunt or the secrets of dumbledore have you seen him in many other things no of that list i've only seen hannibal and he's incredible in that he really is um i'm not a star wars fan i think rogue one is star wars isn't it showing my ignorance here we're on a yeah, it, podcast yeah. about films, and I know nothing about Star Wars, one of the biggest franchises ever, but no, it's not for me. Um, similarly, Dumbledore, that's Harry Potter, if memory serves me correctly. I've seen two Harry Potter films, that was too, too many. <laughs> but, but Hannibal, incredible show. Uh, but let's get away from Hannibal, and we're moving from Uganda to Madagascar next. Uh, we're at a snake and mongoose fight, and I've probably mentioned this before, I hate snakes. Like, they really freaked me out. So I didn't like this scene particularly. But Bond is working with an agent called Carter, and they're running surveillance on Malacca. Carter seems quite inexperienced, and he gets caught touching his earpiece, and Malacca spots straight away. Pretty useless, has to be said. But I thought Bond was the rookie at this point. You know, he's only just become a double O, and he's taking lead on the mission. Um, That seems out of place so if, if Bond has only just become a double O what does that make 
Agent Carter. It's like, you know when you watch films and for some reason they go, oh, you um, analyst that sits behind your desk all day, you have to come out in the field, you know, with the, the, the main agent for some, you know, reason. That's what it felt like. He was really out of place. And he like, you know, when we were watching it, he's touching his earpiece and you're thinking like, why are you touching your earpiece? And then Bond has a go at him for touching his earpiece. It's like um, job swap day. You know, maybe there's a double O agent sat back at MI6 answering the phone or something while Carter's out in the field. <laughs> yes. Yes, in indeed, Andy. That's a, um, it made me think of something happened at work today, which I won't go into. So we are treated to a really good parkour chase. And I mentioned this is my, one of my favorite scenes. And, you know, my teenage boy mentioned this was a really good scene. And it is a really good scene. So Bond chases Malacca through a construction site and eventually to an embassy. And there's a bit here where Malacca kind of squeezes through this opening on, you know, in this wall really high at the top. And then basically Bond just runs through it and the wife and the, the son laughed at that as well. So there's a bit of hu- that um, typical Bond kind of humour in the film still. And a comment here was, this is a very strong opening for Craig. So it's it's very, I don't want to say action man, but you can tell he's very physical and he can look after himself. Yeah, I, I would say there's, other than a couple of quite obvious stuntmen, in shot, I thought this was an excellent scene, but there were a couple of obvious things which we talked touched on in quite a lot of the Bond films actually. But as we're getting into the two thousands, I was hoping this sort of thing would be a thing of the past by now. Yeah, and and yeah, I I didn't notice a stuntman actually, so you you've done well there. Obviously, I know Daniel Craig isn't going to do the the jumps between various cranes and various stunts. But from memory, Andy, I think Daniel Craig injured himself on a, a, at least one or two Bond films, hasn't he? I think that's a bit of a recurring theme, isn't it? Craig getting injured on a Bond film. Um, yeah, I think I've heard that numerous times. I guess in future episodes we might get into that in a little bit more detail. We'll get our research team going through the archives. Bond is called in the embassy. However, Bond shoots Malacca and a nearby gas tank and escapes an explosion. He also steals the backpack Malacca was carrying and Bond finds the text message on Malacca's phone that says, Ellipsis. No time made here. It's a lot of trouble to go through for a text message, isn't it? What if it, it looked at the phone and it said, new phone, who dis? I agree. And when this happened, I can't remember if it was my son or wife, said... So he, he basically just killed the bloke because he needed the backpack. He seemed to have gone to a lot of trouble just to get the backpack. But yeah, he obviously he he would have liked to take Malacca if he could, but because he was captured, um, cornered, I think he was he had to um, adjust his plan, didn't he? Yeah, he made a judgment call, and uh, I'm not sure everyone agreed with that judgment, but that's for a future scene. But before we get to that scene, we have a brief scene on a yacht where Le Chief is playing cards. And this is where we see that he's got an eye that weeps blood. And like we said earlier, there's no real mention as to how or why that occurred, but he does make mention that it he has some condition, which means he weeps blood. And it's at this point he finds out about Malacca. 
Yeah, that, that's just a, a small scene on the on the yacht, and we get we get another scene here now. So we're in MI six, and you see M, and she's very angry that Bond's violent actions were caught on tape at the embassy, and it seems like she's coming out of some kind of committee meeting, and she she's obviously being scrutinised and drilled as well, and she she mentions something I can't remember exactly what she mentions, but she she's getting lots of challenge as well, and. We then see Bond has broken into M's apartment. You don't know it's M's apartment straight away. You just see him working on some kind of computer. But then obviously um, it is M's computer. And he uses M's computer to help trace where the text message um, on Malacca's phone has come from. Yeah. M gets back to her apartment to find Bond there. So she's not happy. And Bond mentions they have a bit of an interaction. And Bond mentions that he knows what the M stands for. And it's not just a randomly assigned letter. And he's about to reveal it when M cuts him off. And I can't remember exactly what she said, but it's something along the lines of, if you utter one more word, it'll be the last one you ever say. Well, you know, it's she's quite adamant that he will not reveal that information to the viewing public. Yeah, it, I thought that was um, a bit strange, Andy. Because I don't think it's ever been... I know it's been rebooted, but I don't think it's ever been alluded that Bond is very sophisticated at hacking maybe this version of of bond instead of doing oriental languages at oxford or cambridge he's done a a computing degree maybe yeah maybe like computer science or something jay before we move on we're gonna i know you're gonna talk about the next scene but this feels like as good a place as any what did you feel about the decision to cast judy dench as m again bear in mind we've seen her now for in in all four brosnan films do you think it was the right choice? Bear in mind that this is a reboot, so unless I'm mistaken, everyone is a brand new character. I believe they are, yes. All new actors for the characters. I, I'm i a little bit torn, Andy, because Dame Judi Dench is obviously um, a magnificent actress, so I don't have any problems with her continuing in the, the franchise from that point of view. But if you look at the continuity of it, that version of M has obviously worked with Bond on four films, but this is rebooted, so technically it's at the beginning of his career, so you could argue he's before Bosnan in terms of M's career and Bond's career. I did read something where I think it was Martin Campbell basically said, Dame Judy Dench was so good as M that they just decided to keep her in and not worry about recasting her as M. So I personally don't have a, an issue. I can look beyond that, you know, because she's appeared in the Bosnian films. You know, she, she's obviously a very good actress. It's a very good character that she portrays in terms of how she interprets that and brings it on screen. I don't have any, any issue with that, so I can kind of, I can get through that, Andy. Do you have a different view then? I don't know. I, th- I think she's tremendous. I just found it curious that if you are going to reboot and go back to the beginning, which is essentially what this is, and, you know, if we think back to the very first Bond film, Doctor No, James Bond is already a double O agent at that point, so even that's not the beginning. This is this is even pre-Doctor No, if we're, if we're going from a timeline perspective. So... It it just seemed it seemed like an odd choice 
as a standalone, that if you're going to reboot, why would you not go for a whole new cast of actors? But then I guess the the flip side to that is, who plays a better M than Judy Dench? It's a short list. So we are now leaving MI6 and we're going to the Bahamas. And we see Bond driving a Ford. And we debate, so me, when I say we, me and the missus debated whether this is the first time that Bond has driven a Ford. Me and the missus are not big car fans. Andy, I know you're not a big car fan, but you, you do kind of have a good memory or pick out various cars that Bond has driven. So you might have known the answer to this before you, you've seen the notes. Because we thought, oh, that must be the first time Bond has driven a Ford. But it isn't actually. When we've done some research, we can see that Bond has driven two Fords before. A Ford Mustang in Diamonds Are Forever, which is Tiffany Casey's car. And a Ford Fairlane in Die Another Day, which was Raul's fast car, where he says, can I buy a car? And he says, oh, I've got a fast car for you. So, Andy, did did you know that before seeing the notes or or not? No, I wouldn't have guessed that. I just thought that a Ford Mondeo is a bit of a come down <laughs> from what we'd seen in the previous film, because I remember the Aston Martin Vanquish. To go from that to a Ford Mondeo is... Uh, so, yeah, it's a bit of a... But it's like it's going from your finest steak to your cheapest burger, isn't it? No offence to any Ford drivers out there, my wife included. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I thought it was strange, Andy. And obviously... We see later on he does drive an Aston Martin. But yeah, when that came on, I did think, well, he's had Aston Martins. I think, was the Invisible Car BMW? No, that was the Aston Martin Vanquish. I think they they even dubbed it the Vanish (laughs) as a play on words. And Bosnan's driven um, BMW. So I thought, yeah, maybe that seems a step down. But obviously, like I mentioned, we see him driving an Aston Martin later on. Um, also, carrying on, Bond is mistaken for um, a car valet as well, and he deliberately crashes the car into a metal fence, and that sets off all the car alarms in the car park. This has caused a, a, a distraction for the security, and then Bond infiltrates the security room and reviews the security camera recordings. I really like this scene. I thought it was funny. the way <laughs> It was just the way he did it as well, that you thought, oh no, he's going to park his car for him, and then he... He lines it up ready to reverse, and then he just reverses at such ridiculous speed and then throws the keys over his shoulders after. Just, yeah, really funny. Do you think he intentionally did that? As in, I don't mean deliberately crashed, but you know when he drops his car off, he's doing his shoelace up. So do you think he was pretending to do his shoelace up so he could get wait for a car to appear to do that? Or do you think he was just being opportunistic that a car appeared, some people came out that are being a bit arsy, and they think, oh, I do that, and I can use that as a distraction. I thought it was just a happy accident, because I, I, I don't... I mean, I don't know, because it's never really explained, but I just got the feeling that he just happened to be tying his shoelace. But either way, it worked out quite nicely. But the the way the way the, the scene unfolded, I just thought was, was really, really funny. And I made a note that there's actually a lot more humour in this film than I remembered. Like, there's this scene, there's the one you mentioned earlier around him just busting through the wall when he's chasing Malacca. Uh, yeah, some good stuff. And uh, Continuing on, Bond ends up finding 
Alex Dimitros, who's a middleman. He's working for Le Chiffre and he was hired to find someone who could carry out a task for Le Chiffre. Bond meets him and plays poker with him and he even wins his Aston Martin DB5 in the process because I think he goes all in and uh, the uh, the dealer won't won't allow him to write a check or something well he you know he wants to he wants to up the stakes he says no you've got to play what's on the table and he says well my car keys are on the table so he, he puts them in and uh, and bond wins the car and then we see m in bed asleep she's not alone so i'm guessing she's married never confirmed but that's the assumption uh, she gets a call and it's MI6 to tell her that someone is logging in to the MI6 system using her credentials. Um, so she gets the computer out to investigate further. Yeah, and then there's a funny bit here where Bond is flirting with Solange and she drives around, what, well, sorry, he drives around the mini roundabout at the hotel and then he's like, oh, I'm here. Because she, she says, like, is your place far? And he says it's very close. And I thought that was quite funny and kind of, backs up what Andy said earlier about you know there's a few funny bits in this film the funny bits in this film already which is keeping in tradition with the Bond franchise but considering this has been rebooted and darker like you mentioned Andy there's still some funny elements in there and Bond seduces her and she says something like you like married men Um, (laughs) definitely not married men so (laughs) she says Something like you like married women, and I that that's a a fine statement. That is just some bit of banter between Bond and her. And Bond orders a Bollinger and some caviar, and then obviously the person on the phone says, "Is that for like how many people or something?" And he says, "For one." And that's Bond's not hanging around. He, he's he's focused. He's going to follow. Um, her husband, he, he's found out that Alex is going to Miami and he, he's he's focused, Andy. I like that. He, he's not being swayed. He's been playing the game. You think at first maybe he's he's been distracted by a bit of skirt, but no, he, he's not. He's back on the mission. He is, he is just doing what he needs to do for Queen and Country at this point. Yeah, so, so he follows Demetrius to Miami. And the question I have is, how did he follow him all the way from the Bahamas to Miami without being spotted? Because the way the scene's played out, he must have been on the same plane. Because he's then seen in Miami following him in a taxi. from what I'm assuming from the airport or from nearby. So he must have been on the same plane. And how did he get the same plane as him without being seen? Very, very odd. Uh, but he continues following him, and they end up in a bodyworks exhibition... And then Bond gets caught by Demetrius. Uh, a knife is pulled, and they have an intense kind of standoff where Demetrius is trying to stab Bond, but Bond's fighting back. And then eventually Bond wins, kills him. And uh, thanks for coming, Alex. And the, the bag that you see Alex has checked in has gone missing. So Bond manages to follow the man, Carlos, and I think from memory uses the phone, doesn't he, to kind of identify who Carlos is, and Carlos picks it up. So Bond has identified who he needs to follow because obviously he doesn't know who picked up the bag. Bond follows Carlos to Miami International Airport and we see Carlos pull out the duffel bag. Well, you don't actually see him pull out. You you see him actually get changed into the security uniform um, as well, which is obviously being in the bag and he puts it on. He 
He then slips into the secure area of the airport and Bond follows him. He he then rings MI6 to get some help, doesn't he? But then as he's liaising with MI6, I think it's M, isn't it, at this point, Andy? He's on the phone too. Is, that, is, it, is, it, M, is it M or the assistant? I think it starts as the assistant because the assistant puts him on hold. <laughs> yes, yes, he does. A brave man. And, you know, he's figured out the, the, the code actually is ellipsis and he gets through the door. Yeah, this is where we see the uh, Richard Branson cameo. He's a passenger going through security in the background. That, that's a good spot, Andy. Like I said earlier, I, d- I didn't pick that up. And M seems to have a male assistant I've just alluded to. And we haven't seen Money Penny yet. And spoiler alert, we don't see Money Penny in Casino Royale as well. So she, she's not in this one. And she's been in Andy, correct me, pretty much every film so far. I I think it's gotta be every film, hasn't it? My my one question mark is Doctor No. But I th- am I thinking that Q was not in Doctor No and first appeared in, in From Rush Will Love? I'm not sure if that's the same for Money Penny, but yeah, this may be the first time we don't see Money Penny. And this, so we see M's um, got a new assistant called Villas, and the character's name was actually a reference to James Villas, who played Bill Tanner in For Your Eyes Only. So another little throwback there. We see Bond is chasing Carlos across the runway, and a note I made here is Daniel Craig's Bond is doing a lot of running. He's doing a lot of chasing in this scene, and even at the beginning with the parkour, so he's a very fit Bond. Yeah, he's he's all action. He's not he's not just using his brains, he's using his body as well. This is a really cool scene, actually. So there's a plane that's trying to land as Bond is uh, pursuing. There's you know, the, the chase on the runway, the plane tries to land and... Um, Nearly, nearly comes a cropper. Carlos manages to jump from the vehicle. Bond eventually manages to stop the vehicle that's carrying the bomb before it hits this new airplane that they're unveiling. So this is the, the kind of the plot that Carlos is trying to set the bomb off to get rid of this new airplane. Um, Bond is apprehended by the police and he's being kind of pushed down onto the, the bonnet. So Carlos thinks, oh, I can set the bomb off here. But what he doesn't realise is that Bond has cl- taken the bomb off and clipped it onto Carlos's trousers. So he blows himself to Kingdom Come. And like I said, I thought this was another really, really strong scene. And then Bond kind of leaves with a bit of a wry smile on his face as he's being detained. Yeah, that that's a, a good scene. And we now jump back to the Bahamas and Bond discovers that Solange has been murdered. MI6, MI6 has found her drowned in a fishing boat net. And M explains that she was tortured and killed by Lashifa because she was the only one left alive and therefore he assumed that she must have talked. Yeah, this is uh, Craig picking up where Connery and Moore and the gang left off. He's not able to save the girl. We've commented that on numerous occasions that, that Bond girls don't always last the duration of the film. So that's another one that bites the dust there. Lashifa's plan was to short sell hundreds of millions of dollars in Skyfleet stock by destroying the prototype airplane in the previous scene, which would then cause the stock to fall, send them into bankruptcy. We find out at this point Lashifa's lost over a hundred million dollars as a result of Bond foiling his plot. 
So Lashifa won't be a happy bunny there. So M also implants a homing device in Bond's left off forearm so she can track him anywhere. And M tells Bond about the poker match and she mentioned that Bond is the, the best player in the agency so he, he's been sent to play against Lashifa. So I think, I don't know if she's reluctant but she, she does make the point, doesn't she Andy, to say you're, you're the best poker player we've got. So we're moving on to the, the train now and Bond meets Vesper for the first time and Vesper is played by Eva Green. Eva Green actually received the BAFTA raising Star Wolf for playing Vesper in Casino Royale. Yeah, she's been in numerous roles throughout her career, including Kingdom of Heaven, 300, Rise of an Empire, Sin City, A Dame to Kill For and Penny Dreadful. So quite the CV she's got already. Bond and Vesper kind of sizing each other up they're making assessments of each other and it's something of an awkward interaction between the two it has to be said they're throwing a few barbs each other's way and uh, you know you get the sense that there, there may be be some underlying tension there and distrust but once they finish talking Vesper leaves to, leaves her seat goes wherever she's going and Bond has a, has a look on his face that suggests he's actually quite taken with her he seems to quite like her secretly or at least that's the impression i got from from the the looks he was throwing out i think bond likes a strong female doesn't he based on past experiences even though this is a reboot i think that's a a trait that you can see with other bond girls or the ones that he seems to be more taken with yeah i'd say that's a fair assessment so we're, we're in montenegro now and bond and vesper don't seem to be hitting it off and Bond states Vesper isn't his type and Vesper retorts back and says smart. But then Bond comes back and says no, single. And then they, they clash again pretty much in the next scene when they're checking in at the hotel. Yeah, Bond's... He's been a bit of a dick, isn't he? That's, that's the truth of it. I'm trying to think what it is exactly that is said, but he basically gives the game away that they are not who they are pretending to be. I think they've... They're going to check in under pseudonyms, false names, and Bond just goes to the desk and says something like, my name's James Bond, but the reservation's in whatever name it is, I can't remember, um, which obviously she's not happy about. And then they clash later on, because they've they've picked out outfits for each other, which uh, is a bit presumptuous, has to be said, and uh, just kind of adds to the underlying tension that there seems to be between the two. Later on, Bond goes to the casino, he meets Le Chiffre and the other players in the game. And I think there's actually, during this introduction with Le Chiffre, uh, he makes mention of Bond's fake name. And again, I can't remember what it was, but it says, oh, is that is it Bond or is it such and such? So obviously Bond was correct in assuming that Le Chiffre would know all along. Um, but I thought that was a nice way to introduce themselves to each other. And um, as they're playing, Bond orders a drink, goes into great detail about how he wants it. And there's quite a funny bit where some of the other players decide, oh, yeah, I like the sound of that, and they order the same. Yeah, and I just, well, we just want to do a bit of a shout out here. So that is that is a funny bit where Andy says Bond orders a drink, goes into loads of detail. I can't remember the actual recipe, Andy, and the ingredients that he says. But I want to give out a shout out to Spockadow and he, he, they pointed out from the James Bond subreddit that 
they are there's some lesser known continuity errors in the James Bond franchise. So there's a there's a, a thread on the James Bond subreddit that Spockadile has set up and they've pointed out that the Keen and Lilith that Bond actually just mentioned actually wasn't hasn't been in production since nineteen eighty six. So what they are talking about on the on the subreddit is that the, the writers are basically taking the ingredients from the book directly, which obviously was done before 1986. Whether the actual writers knew that the Kina Lilith was no longer actually in production, who knows? But I just wanted to give a bit of a shout out there. Uh, there's, there's a break and the host states something like they've been playing for four hours, which just seems ridiculously long. Um... For someone who doesn't play poker, I don't play poker, Andy, but four hours seems like it's a very long time. And from memory, I don't think any players have been eliminated at this stage. I'm trying to think back when you, you see the angle of the table. I think they had all the players there. Feel free to correct me. I've, I've not seen match of the day from that game, so uh, I'm not sure the results. But I think you're right. I think at this point, everyone's still in, the, still in play, aren't they? Yes. And... Le Chiffre goes back to his room and he gets attacked by Urbano and one of his henchmen. Um, they obviously want the money back that Le Chiffre has lost during the failed plot with the the um, airplane. And they threaten to cut off Falanca's arm, but he he doesn't make any kind of noise or tries to stop him, does he? So that's that for that point. Yeah, it's, it's very telling that he doesn't try and try and stop them. Uh, meanwhile, while this is going on, Bond and Vesper are outside the room. So I think Bond knows something's up, so he's going to see what's what's what. Um, and Abano and his henchmen walk out of the room. Bond and Vesper do, are they are they pretending to kiss or they're kissing in the doorway? So it seems like they're just you know just a couple in love. But one of the henchmen notices Bond's earpiece and starts shooting, and then a fight emerges. It takes him down the stairwell. Uh, henchman gets thrown off the top of the stairwell down to his death. Vesper is caught in the the crossfire here. She's kind of in the way, and she tries to escape through at least one fire door, maybe more. And they're locked, which is uh, against all kinds of health and safety code, it has to be said. Uh, I don't know what the rules are like in in Montenegrin hotels, but uh, can't keep your fire exits locked. I thought this was quite a graphic, quite a gritty fight scene very violent um and there's quite a few now that have been like this where the 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 quality and level of of fight scenes have just been taken up quite significantly from what we've seen previously i thought this was a tremendous scene yeah and obviously this is the one that you mentioned at the beginning of the pod andy didn't you um saying this was your favorite scene so we the bit Andy, I didn't, I didn't write this down, and I can't remember the exact wording, but I did like it that basically Bond told Vesper to go and get Mathis, wasn't it? And then he basically was just basically dumping the bodies in like some kind of understair cupboard, wasn't he? Yeah, just, yeah, I quite uh, like that. Nothing, nothing fancy about that. It's just stick the bodies in a cupboard and get someone else to deal with it. Um. So Bond cleans himself up and then goes back to play Le Chiffre. And Le Chiffre is obviously being very perceptive here because he notices that Bond has changed his shirt. Um, changed his shirt. For me, 
it was a white shirt and it would just look like a white shirt they had been um, playing before. We shortly see Bond and Vesper in the shower together uh, and they're both fully clothed and Vesper is having trouble dealing with the guilt of helping Bond kill Urbano in the stairwell. Yeah, she's clearly upset, clearly in shock. Bond, I would say, is is a real gentleman here. He's really comforting, puts his arms around her, you know, wants to make sure she's okay. There is one bit that's a bit weird, though, and that's why he thought sucking her fingers was a good idea. Um, I think, does she make some mention about how she feels like she's got blood on her hands? So his natural response is to suck the blood away from her fingers? Bit odd. That is very odd, Andy. I I thought the same as well then. And Andy, and let me check. I don't think we wrote this down. Do you know that that scene was filmed in one take? I did not know that. I suppose it'd be really awkward to kind of if you have to do it in multiple takes, like wait for the clothes to dry or have like multiple outfits <laughs> on standby. Um Yeah, but no. Very very powerful and emotive scene, I thought. I, I agree, Andy. And we so my note here, Andy, is after that there's more card playing. And I think this must be either the longest or the most casino card playing scenes that we've had in a Bond film so far. I know it's it's that the plot involves a, a poker game. So by definition, you would expect to see a lot of poker being played. But when I'm watching this, I'm thinking like, obviously Bond, you've seen him play in in lots of different card games. Even in Doctor No, you know, where he meets Sylvia Trench for the first time, he's playing a card game. So it's throughout the whole franchise. But this film, it just seemed to be a lot of card playing. I don't know if it involves the most minutes on screen of card playing. I'm, I'm not too sure, but it's just a... A note that I just I just made there. I think it's got to be, hasn't it, by far? Because, like you said, it's integral to the plot. Whereas in previous films, they're kind of throwaway scenes, and it's just another way for Bond to show how smart he is compared to the others. Whereas this, this is a jewel of the mind, almost, isn't it? It is, Andy, and that's a a good obs- observation there because it links into my next point, where Bond loses to Lashifa. After misreading Lashifa's tell, so Bond loses around forty million dollars. So not a good day at the office for Bond. Bond is unhappy and angry, and he clashes with Vesper. So usually you see Bond winning car games, don't you? He goes against like a villain or a, a secondary villain, and always kind of get the upper hand, or maybe a Bond girl. So this, I didn't remember this at all. And it surprised me when he lost. I thought it was a bit obvious that he he clocked Lashifa's tail straight away. But him losing all his money and getting knocked out of the game surprised me. I totally forgot about that. Yeah, I must admit, I didn't remember the, the part where he actually loses. Um, I think it does it does help with the narrative in that it shows Bond has an arrogant side. And, you know, he's still... Maybe he's still inexperienced. Maybe he's, he's not the, the grizzled double O veteran that he would later become. So he is still prone to making mistakes. Um, and it shows kind of a, vul- a vulnerable side, would you say? Or certainly a um, the lack of maturity in how he 
initially goes to respond to it. I think it's it's quite eye-opening in terms of the character development, if nothing else. Yeah, he's still... He's obviously a double agent, so he's got experience. But for me, you could tell he's still learning, and every day is like a school day. He's inexper- I don't know if you say he's inexperienced, but he's still like he's at the beginning of his career. So I think, like you said, it's quite good in terms of the character development. Seeing him lose, yeah, he's and he's not happy at this point. So he's going back. He goes back to the bar, orders a drink. He asks for a martini, I believe, and the bartender asks, shaken or stirred. And Bond shoots back, does it look like I give a damn? Which I really enjoyed that as a throwback to the famous shaken, shaken not stirred line. Um, so, you know, it's still there as a callback, but this Bond is going to do things a little bit differently. And not long after this, this is where we, we formally meet Felix Leiter. Uh, Felix is actually one of the card players. We see him around the table, but he's we, he's unknown to us at this point. But he introduces himself. Uh, to Bond um, he says to Bond he'll give him the 5 million dollars buyback so that um, he can get back in the game as long as the CIA get the Shifra afterwards and uh, it's a good thing he, good thing he did at this point because Bond had a, a knife in his hand and he was about to do something quite irrational but Leiter is the one that kind of talks him down and in this film Felix Leiter is played by Jeffrey Wright who is the seventh different actor to play Felix Leiter. Yeah, Andy, I don't think even it's it's a proper knife, is it? I think it's like a um, a knife that you, you eat with, isn't it? He's, he's picked it up. Was it from some kind of tray or serving plate, wasn't it? It is, yeah. It's... Um, I don't think it's a it's butter, not a butter knife. knife. No, it's not a butter <laughs> knife. <laughs> Great lines, Jinx. Is it, is, it a, is it a steak knife or is it even... Is it even a steak knife? I don't know if it's even that sharp. I don't know if it's just a a knife that you have in your everyday cutlery drawer. <laughs> so he's he's clearly not thinking straight. Yeah, like you said, he's very irrational. So later on, um, Valanka poisons Bond's ma- martini. Now, Bond goes to his car and he's distressed and communicating with a medical specialist at MI6 headquarters. He's about to use the defib and he sees the connection isn't plugged in and passes out and Vesper happens to arrive, fixes the, the defib kit and shocks him back to life. Now, the the wife here, so there's two things from this scene, Andy. The wife commented on how did Valanka know which glass to spike? Because I think from memory there were either two or three glasses on the on the tray and also the other one and this is what my son said he's seen this scene already on social media so before we started watching casino royale i said oh let me tell you a little bit about james bond he's a spy he works for the government and you were like dad i don't care i know you know blah 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 i remember seeing i've seen something about where he shocks himself because he got poisoned and i'm like what do you mean there's a bit there, so I totally forgot about this bit, but <laughs> he's seen it on some kind of meme or something or something on social media, so that surprised me. Do you have a comment on the the glass spiking? Definitely multiple glasses on the tray. I'm not sure if it was two or three, but if she, you would have to know which one was which, unless they were different drinks, but they didn't look to be. They looked to be the same drink multiple times. Um, 
But yeah, the only way I would explain that away is if they are different drinks orders and she know who knows who ordered what. So I can get by that, but on first glance, I had the same thoughts. Like, how do, how do they know which one's which? And Andy, another question which I haven't wrote down on our show notes. So far, I, I don't know what minute we're in in terms of the film, but Daniel Craig's Bond seems to drink a lot compared to the other Bonds. I don't know if you've noticed that. He seems to have had quite a few martinis already in his debut. You know? Definitely, definitely a heavy drinker. I think Brosnan had a scene or two where he's he's having a drink in his hotel. Maybe he's got a vodka bottle or something like. But they're just kind of one-off scenes. Whereas, yeah, every chance he gets, Daniel Craig's Bond is pounding them down, isn't he? Yeah, that's the bit where Paris comes into Brosnan's room, isn't it? Paris Carver. Yes, that's the thing I'm thinking of. Yeah, thanks for reminding me. Memory's not so bad after all, it seems. <laughs> um, so back to the poker game. Le Chiffre takes out Felix. But then Bond returns, which surprises Le Chiffre. And he says something about how it nearly killed him. And we see that there are only four players left. As the game progresses, all four players decide to go all in. Now, bear in mind, there's $150 million in the pot. So whoever this wins this takes everything. And Bond ends up winning with a straight flush. So, Andy, do you know how to play poker? I have played poker exactly three times in my adult life. And I needed a crib sheet to understand which hands were which. But what I will say is, my total career winnings in poker was paid in £15, won £30. So it was quite a good record across those three games. It's not quite the £150 million that Bond and Le Chiffre are playing for here, but but £30 is a, is a respectable effort for a novice. You, you've doubled your, you know, what you started with, Andy. Respectable. So, so well, my question was, there were, there were four players... Um, the the two characters that had smaller pots ended up putting all in, which were obviously significantly less than what Le Chiffre had and Bond. So my question is, if they won, do they still get Bond and Le Chiffre's money, even though that Bond and Le Chiffre had, had loads more money that they put in the pot? Did that make sense? Because if you put in £10 and I put in £1 million later on in that round, it doesn't seem fair that you could win everything if if your stake was only £10. Does that make sense? That does make sense, yeah. I guess, and I, and I don't know the answer. I don't, I don't know the rules well enough. But I guess my counter to that would be, in that scenario, I pay in £10, you pay in a million. If I win, take my £10 back and then take... £10 from the pot as my winnings, which match what I put in, where does the rest of the money go? Does that just go back to you and we carry on playing? Or is that your own fault because you put in that much? Yeah, I think it's the the latter. And if there's any listeners out there that are big poker players or just someone that has a better understanding than what me and Andy does, feel free to contact us on our social medias and let us know. But as Andy says, Bond ends up winning with a straight flush. Bond and Vesper have this kind of candle-lit dinner to celebrate. 
and Bond says he will name the drink a Vespa. And then Vespa gets a, a message and she goes out and she ends up getting kidnapped and Bond gives chase. Bond nearly runs over Vespa um, as she's laying on the ground and she's bound as well. And the car ends up rolling as well. And the wife commented here to say that there was a lack of airbags in Bond's car. That is a, a good point around the airbags. I think I know the the reason why, but it doesn't necessarily explain it. And it's probably to do with cameras being inside the car means you can't have the airbag switched on. And I don't know whether I've read that somewhere in, like, if you put it in your original notes and took it out, or whether it's from my recent watching of The Grand Tour, where James May goes careering into a wall and uh, breaks one of his ribs and stuff. And the, it, the airbag doesn't deploy, and it's because of the cameras that are in the car. I could It could be that. Uh, but another question I had is, how far over the drink drive limit do you think Bond was at this point? It must have been a lot, but you, you see it in a lot of films, don't you, Andy? People drinking, and then they say, oh, yeah, I'm going now, and then they just jump in the car and drive. I think you notice it more in American films. Yeah, they do seem to have a, more of a lax attitude to that sort of thing, but kids don't drink and drive. And if you're kids, don't be driving at all. Um Another question I have in this scene as well is, so Bond crashes the car, he gets dragged out by the henchman, and they know about the chip in his arm. Now how would they know that? I'm not sure I can explain. They don't have a Miranda Frost, do they? Like um, Gustav Gustav um, Graves does. No, they don't. So So. there's there's no, uh, you know alluding to some kind of mole in MI6. So when I saw your comment there, Andy, I think that is a that is an interesting question. And I, I don't know, because I'm just thinking, if you did your basic research on a, a spy, so Lashifa knows it's James Bond, but James Bond has only just got that fitted when he was in the Bahamas. So it's only recently happened within you know, the last 24, 48 hours. So his his research is very up-to-date. Maybe a bit of a plot hole there, but uh, we'll we'll move on anyway, because what this leads to is the infamous naked torture scene. So Nashifra cuts the hole out of a chair to and bottomless, and then he's there, strips Bond naked, sits him in the chair, and Nashifra has this, this huge rope that's knotted at the end, and he's uh, he's whipping him from underneath, and it's uh, makes my eyes water just watching it. So, uh, Lord knows what it must feel like to be on the end of it. Bond is quite funny in this scene. He's not giving the information that Lashifra needs, and then he starts hysterically laughing and and says, "Now the whole world will know you died scratching my balls." And uh, things are just about to get a lot worse when Mister White comes in and kills Lashifra. That surprised me, Andy, because I totally forgot about Lashifa dying via Mr. White. So that surprised me when that happened. I also wonder whether Daniel Craig or Mads Mikkelsen was a method acting in any of that. You know, they have to do the real rope and knot in in that scene. I, I hope not for Craig's sake at the very least. When that happened, Andy, you said about making your eyes water, I did find myself crossing my legs a few times. It's it's one of those things I think most men find a bit difficult to watch, isn't it, when anything evolves in that area? Yeah, just, you know, 
Leave it alone. Punch in the face is fine, but don't go downstairs. So Bond wakes up in the hospital and you see Bond is recovering and he's talking to Mathis. And then Mathis is actually tased and taken away by MI6 agents. They actually think he was working for Le Chifre. And the interesting fact here that I didn't write down and that only read this um, not too long before we came on a podcast. You know, one of the agents that escorted Mathis away from that scene was Daniel Craig's stunt double. There we go. It's almost like you've got two Bonds in the same film. So Bond wakes up to Vesper and the banker arrives and Bond tells Vesper that the password is Vesper. And she gets a bit emotional um, for some reason. And Bond and Vesper share a nice moment. This bit, Andy, was when I was starting to not remember, but I was getting a bit suspicious of Vesper because I didn't remember the um, her bit of the storyline that's coming up. Yes, yeah, so I've made a note a little bit later on. But I think this was the, the first indicator to me that maybe something's not quite legit here because you don't get you don't start getting tearful if you say i've used your name as a password if i go and tell the wife that oh wife i've I've used your name as a password she's not going to shed any tears andy she'd be like roll her eyes whatever what do you want me to do with that information whereas vesper you know when bond tells her that she does get a bit emotional yeah, the the plot is certainly starting to thicken at this point. And um, we have another scene of Craig in some trunks while we're at the beach. You know, a bit of uh, eye candy for the ladies there. Or gentlemen out there, of course. Uh, then we move on to Venice. Um, Bond sends M his letter of resignation. So he's done the one mission and the one film for Daniel Craig. And he's done. So thanks for coming, Daniel. Uh, you've had a good stint as 007 there. Um but of course, the film's not quite over yet. Vespa notices a man with an eye patch watching her and Bond, and you know Bond and Vespa at this point—they're all loved up. That that earlier tension and mistrust is, is completely gone. It's it's a full-on love affair at this point. Um, but there are the telltale signs. There's just one or two things happening now that made me think, "Hang on a minute, Vespa's not quite who she seems to be." M phones Bond and tells him that the Treasury are getting a bit nervous and want to know where the money, um, well, when the money's going to be returned. This ben, So Bond then starts becoming suspicious of Vesper. So Andy's on this already, you know, on t- Andy's ahead of Bond at this point in terms of knowing that Vesper's showing a bit sus, a bit suspicious here, a bit sus. And he, he goes to the bank and follows Vesper. Now, there's a shootout here, and Bond chases Vesper and the villains, and that the, the building that they're in is, is sinking as well. Bond kills someone with a nail gun, and I think that must be the first time in the franchise that there's a nail gun death, I think. It's the first one I remember, but I will... I'll give you a couple of little notes here. Firstly, the note that I made I was just nailed him, which I'm quite proud of. It's quite a, quite a funny note, even if it's just amusing for myself. But... It's when I saw in your notes that this must be the first time for the franchise. My initial thought was, well, no, because Jaws got a nail gun in the head. But then I remember that wasn't Jaws; that was the actor Richard Keel in the film Happy Gilmore. 
has got a nail in his head. So I completely, <laughs> I must have been late when I read the, read the notes, but I thought, no, Jaws. But no, it wasn't Jaws. It was, it was in Happy Gilmore. Completely different film. Um, but yes, I, I tend to agree. Now that this is probably the first use of a nail gun from Bond, um, we then move on a bit further. Vesper is in, in a lift in this building, and the the lift goes un- underwater. Bond is trying to save her under the water, but she refuses to be saved, and she removes the key from the lock, and she ends up drowning. Bond, you know, frantically tries to get into the lift, finally manages to break in, brings her up to the surface, but it's too late. Rest in peace, Vesper. It seemed like she was a traitor all along, working for the baddies, and effectively she killed herself. She, you know, she, I don't know whether it was a guilt thing or what, but it was... a you know, you could argue that she killed herself rather than Bond being the cause of her death. But it turns out that she actually used the money to pay for Bond's safety. So there's there's a there's a chink of light in the in the dark soul of Vesper, it has to be said. And I made another note here, and this is the third film in a row that I've made a note like this. But Bond says, I think he's talking to M, he says she left her cell phone. That's another Americanism. For any American listeners out there, you're probably thinking, well, yeah, what's wrong with that? In the UK, we don't call them cell phones, we call them mobile phones. So that's three films in a row now where an English or British character has used American verbiage. I didn't pick that up, Andy, but when I saw your note, I thought, oh, he's not going to be happy there, because obviously I remembered what he said in the the last pod in Die Another Day. So that that's a good pickup, Andy. And I I agree, Andy. I think Vesper basically ended up committing suicide by taking the key out. And I think it was to do with the guilt. So the closing scene happens on Lake Como. The end scene ends up uh, in Lake, Lake Como. And we see Mr. White arrive at a fancy estate. He takes a phone call and someone tells him they need to talk. Mr. White is suddenly shot in the leg. And then we see Bond all suited and booted with a gun. And then Bond drops the Bond, James Bond line. And the film finishes. I think that's a a very good ending to the film. It is. I thought it was brilliant. And what it does, of course, is it almost acts as a to be continued. And we'll we'll get into this, I'm sure, in in future episodes. But I think this is the first time where the storyline continues over from one film to another. Now, we've got recurring characters. We've got the likes of Spectre. We've got the likes of Blofeld appearing in multiple films. And and obviously, the Bond character himself and his um, allies in in Q and M, etc. And we have certain things that are continued over, but not the actual plot. You can watch all the Bond films as a standalone, whereas this one is very much saying there's more to come in this story so I thought it was a very very clever ending the rain room. let's move on to some other things that we like to do as regular segments let's start with some one-liners and quotes so we we mentioned this briefly earlier so this is when Bond returns to the poker table after his uh, near-death experience and he says to Le Chiffre I'm sorry that last hand nearly killed me and we've got another Bond to Le Chiffre quote here. So Bond is tied to a wooden chair and he's being tortured. And he says to Le Chiffre, I've got a little itch 
down there with your mind. The one-liners are still present in, in Craig's version. Again, something we alluded to earlier in the pod. So Bond says to the, the bartender, this is at the poker table again, and there's some of the poker players involved. Bond says, uh, dry martini. Oui, monsieur. And to which Bond replies, wait, three measures of Gordon's, one of vodka, half a measure of Kina Lillette, shake it over ice, and add a thin slice of lemon peel. Bartender says, yes, sir. And one of the players, Tomelli, says, you know, I'll have one of those. Infante, so will I. Bartender, certainly. Felix Leiter, my friend, bring me one as well. Keep the fruit. The chief is obviously very annoyed at this point. He says, that's it, hmm? Anyone want to play poker now? And Felix Leiter ends with a little mutter under his breath. Someone's in a hurry. So this one's Bond to Le Chiffre. So Le Chiffre is come back to the poker tale and so is Bond. And Le Chiffre says to Bond, you've changed your shirt, Mr. Bond. I hope our little game isn't causing you to perspire. And then James Bond shoots back a little, but I won't consider myself to be in trouble until I start weeping blood. So I thought that was a little nice interaction there. Yeah, Bond's got the witty comebacks and the one-liners. They've they've not gone away. Uh, they're just delivered a little bit differently these days. Let's let's move on to another feature of our pod, and that is the book versus movie. Um, so there's a few things we've called out here as, as slight differences. Uh, the casino in the book is actually in France, whereas in the movie the casino is in Montenegro. So a, a location difference there. And the, the next one is Le Chiffre funds various Soviet Union activities in the book as, as it's set during the, um, the 50s. In the film, he works and funds terrorism. Yes, that brings that more up to date. And the final point is around Vespa and her demise. So we talked about how she died just a few minutes ago in the, in the lift. Um, but in the book, she actually commits suicide in a hotel room. So that's uh, it's a bit of a downer to end that section of the of the pod. Let's let's lighten the mood a little bit with a joke. What do you say, Jay? Do you want to hear one of my world famous, infamous, you might now say, James Bond jokes? I, I want to listen to one of your infamous jokes. Strap yourself in. What do you call a James Bond film about a calculator? What do you call a James Bond film about a calculator? Casio Royale. Ah, I like that, Andy. You've you've made it topical again, Andy, in terms of linking it to the film. It's a, it's amazing how that happens. It just it just comes to me. You, the foresight you have, Andy, to to do that, and we've got to be careful, Andy, because your jokes can't be too too funny. Because I don't we we don't want you being offered a, another job on a different podcast, Andy, and you to leave us on the rating room because you are our resident comedian. I will be leaving the podcast one day, but it will be to take up the role of James Bond because, as you know, as I proved earlier, I've got better foresight than Bond because I spotted Vesper a mile away and he's still loved up. And now I've got I've got the one-liners written for me by my crack team of uh, of comedy writers that we have in the background. We've got a whole team of staff in research comedy. It's uh, it's quite the production here, but ultimately it's it's leading me on to that eventual call that. Broccoli will give to me. Say, we're ready for a new 007. You're the man for the job. Indeed, indeed, Andy. Fingers crossed. But we, we've had our fun now in terms of the, the James Bond joke. So let's get a bit serious now and talk about the, the quiz. Are you ready? Let's start the quiz. 
As our regular listeners know, you know the format of this now, but let me just kind of go through this again for any new listeners out there. So this is the section where I basically, I'm going to throw four statements at Andy and he's going to guess, he's going to guess which two are correct and which two are incorrect. So Andy, are you ready? I am ready. Let's do this. So the first statement, Casino Royale is the first movie in a franchise where it rains. The second statement. The man sleeping next to Dame Judi Dench was played by Dench's then-husband, Michael Williams. The third statement. The scene where Bond rolls the Aston Martin to avoid Vespa broke the Guinness World Records for most car rolls. The record still stands today. And the last statement. Scarlett Johansson was originally cast to play Vespa, but she had to pull out due to filming delays on The Prestige, which meant the producers would have to delay the Casino Royale shoot by two months. So before Andy answers which two are correct and which ones are incorrect, listeners, feel free to be playing at home. Let's see how you get on. How do you compare to Andy? So, Andy, are you ready to state which ones you think are incorrect or correct? Yeah, this is this is a good selection again you've gone for. Straight away, though, I'm going to go to statement three around the number of car rolls being a Guinness World Record. Something in my mind tells me that is true because I think I have read or seen a documentary or something about that very fact and i think i i think it must have been a documentary because i seem to remember seeing how it was done as well with um kind of like a a lever fitted onto the underneath of the car and there's some sort of remote control where it triggers and it forces the lever down to kind of push the car into the ground which then causes the car to flip and um, it wasn't necessarily intended to roll that many times that was just what happened as a result of they just knew that it would flip the car so I think if if I'm if memory serves me correctly I think that's what happened and it was just a happy accident that it rolled so many times and broke the world record so I'm gonna say that's true and if I'm wrong on that I'm gonna sound like an absolute fool at this point but I'm, I'm gonna say that that one is true uh, the other three statements are a bit tricky. Now, when you said the first one about being the first franchise, first film in the franchise where it rains, this is film 21. Seriously, have we had no rain? That can't be right, surely. But I'm thinking back, and I cannot remember any scene where it rains. So that's really thrown me. I'm going to say it's false, though. I can't I, I, I can't tell you why I think it's false. I just think it's got to be, with this amount, with this many films we've seen, there's got to have been a little bit of rain somewhere. So I'm going to say statement one is false. So I've got statement one false, and I've got statement three as true. Uh, tricky. I'm going to say that statement two 
is false as well. I don't think that's Judy Dench's husband, real life husband. So therefore, by process of elimination, statement four must be true, and Scarlett Johansson was the original pick. So, in summary, I'm going false, false, true, true. So, I can tell you the first statement, Casino Royale is the first movie in the franchise where it rains. So, you got that one wrong. The second statement about the man sleeping next to Dame Judi Dench is a false statement. So, therefore, you got that one right. So, so far... 50-50. The scene where the Aston Martin rolls setting a Guinness world, world record is correct. And you got that right. And I think I recall it rolled seven times, Andy. And that is still a record. They called it um, some kind of cannon is the technical term. And that means the last statement about Scarlett Johansson is wrong. And you said that was right. So 50%. And on that note, Andy, you can feel free to say anything. I'm just going to let the dog out. Yeah, I'll I'll fill the time while uh, you uh, do whatever you do with the dog. I could say anything at this point. So Jay's gone away from from his laptop. I could be talking absolute garbage and he has no way to stop me. What I will say, though, in, in follow-up to Jay's point around the, the, the rain, that is a shocking statistic isn't it 21 films in before we get a rain scene amazing um jay's now coming back to his laptop he is completely oblivious to what we've just been talking about between myself and the listeners uh but he'll find out soon enough i'm sure um, <laughs> but I, I will say continuing what i was talking to the listeners about um it's it's amazing to me that it's taken 21 films to get rain but i'm also curious if if Scarlett Johansson wasn't the original pick, does that mean that Eva Green was, or was there another actress in mind? There were other actresses linked to the part. I don't believe anyone was offered, but there was other famous people that um, auditioned for the role. Um, interestingly, Andy, Eva Green actually got the part one week before her first scene. So it was a, a late role that she was, you know, she was successful in getting. So, yeah, it was a week before she actually filmed her first scene, apparently. That is, that is cutting it quite fine, isn't it? So, yeah, another 50% for me. Feels like that's been, there's been a few weeks in a row now where that's, that's happened. I need, to, I need to reboot my quiz brain as well as reboot the film franchise, don't I? The Rain Room. So... Our next regular section is obviously the, the ranking. So I'm going to kick us off as usual. And I'm going to talk about the runtimes, kill count and martini watch. So as Andy mentioned, he alluded to it earlier about Casino Royale. So he mentioned two hours, 24 minutes. And it is actually the longest film so far. So that is knocking on the Majesty's Secret Service off the top spot by a whole two minutes. So... On the Majesty's Secret Service, 1969 has been the longest running film in terms of runtime, and it's finally beaten by Casino Royale. So I thought that was interesting. We have been record documenting the average runtime by actors, but this week, because Daniel Craig has only done one film, I think we can skip over that one for this week. 
because he's only done one film so it kind of skews um that little statistic so i'm going to move forward and do a kill count obviously i mentioned at the earlier on in the pod that daniel craig's bond kills 11 people in casino Royale, and that actually means casino Royale comes in on in 12th place joint 12th place with from washer we love so that's very much just shy of well just lower the mid table actually and again we we usually track the the kills by actor but because daniel craig has just done the one film so far so his average is 11 i think is a bit skewed at the moment in terms of averages so i'm going to pick that one up again next week when we when we've got two movies i think that's fair andy would you agree yeah, we've got to go where the maths takes us. Usually it takes me round and round when it comes to maths. So Andy is our maths genius resident. He's not only the resident comedian, he's also the resident maths whiz. So moving on, me and Andy both mentioned that Daniel Craig and Bond has martinis, numerous martinis, and so he does drink a martini in our martini watch. So over to you, Andy. Of course he has a martini. It wouldn't be a James Bond film without it, would it? Um, what, it also wouldn't be a James Bond film without the introduction of Bond, James Bond. And we mentioned earlier, this was 2 hours 14 minutes, which is by far the longest it has taken to get to that introduction. In fact, it's longer than quite a lot of the Bond films themselves. So that's going to take some beating, if you want to you want to take longer than that. So uh, straight in at... Bottom of the pile, top of the pile, depending on whether you're looking at quickest or shortest, of course. Uh, moving on, we're we're looking for hat throwing and and hat wearing. Neither of which we see in Casino Royale. What we do see a return of is Felix Leiter. So we've gone four films, all four Brosnan films, without the appearance of Leiter, but he's back for Casino Royale, played by yet another new actor in Jeffrey Wright. Let's uh, watch this space to see if he appears in any future films. And one more from me before I pass back to Jay is the box office. Jay loves talking about the money. Um, we mentioned earlier that there's a reduction in budget, $40 million down from the previous film. So it's $102 million is the budget, but it also was an absolute smash success in terms of the worldwide box office. So in actual terms, $594 million is the number one. But what that means for the adjusted box office is still a very respectable sixth place with $850 million. So looking at the adjusted rankings, it's just below Moonraker and just above Diamonds Are Forever. So a very healthy return, has to be said, for, for Craig's debut. So we're going to move on to Bond Girls now. And as Andy mentioned at the top of the pod, there's only two Bond Girls here. And... For me, I think they're both strong, even though Zalangi has only a, 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 a few minutes on scene. Well, she's not, she has more minutes than, you know, the log cabin girl, private jet hostess. So she's got more minutes there. But I, I do like her in this. And, you know, she she has a bit of banter with Bond. So I've, I've put her in at, in at 31. So she's just above and Andrea Anders from The Man With A Golden Gun and just below Cara from The Living Daylights. 
So Vesper now, the woman that made Bond hand in his notice to M for MI6. She must come in high in in terms of our ranking. Surely, you know, she she's she managed to convince Bond to jack in his career as, as he's just basically signed up to be a double agent. And for me, she is very strong and I put in a ninth position. So that is just below Honey Rider and Tiffany Case. So I think that's a very respectable position, Andy, broke into my top 10. It's took a, a few films to get in a top 10, but over the last few weeks, we've had Waylin and Jinx in my top 10. So Andy, how did you rank Vesper and Solange? Yeah, it's a couple of strong entries there for you, Jay. Bearing in mind, we've now got 70 at this point, 70 Bond girls in the ranking. So you, you've gone in quite high. I, too, thought they were two very strong Bond girls, and I've actually gone a little bit higher for both of them. So I've got Solange in at 23 of 70 uh, between Holly Goodhead and Miranda Frost. Yeah, not, not a lot of minutes in terms of on-air time, but... Very, very strong outings for the minutes that she was on screen. So I was I was a big fan of Sanji, and it's a bit of a shame we get, didn't get to see more of her, if you know what I mean. Which then brings us on to Vespa. Now, Jay's gone, gone for a top 10 position with Vespa. I've gone better than that. I've actually gone top 5. I thought Vespa was a tremendous character. Very, very well played by Eva Green. Um, so for that reason, she's gone in at number five, just below Tracy and just above Solitaire. So five and 23 out of 70, that's two strong entries from my side as well. Let's move this on and we'll talk theme songs next. So the theme song, as mentioned earlier, is You Know My Name by Chris Cornell. Very different from what we've heard previously. Now, now last week... We talked Madonna was very different, but very different for bad reasons, and it went bottom of the pile. This one I really liked. I thought it fit with the the reboot theme, the reimagining of Bond, the, you know, the bringing it into the twenty first century, and a, a very strong song. So I've I've put this at number six, just below Diamonds Are Forever and just above License to Kill. Some of the some of the classics remain near the top, but a, a, a strong song in my opinion. Uh, so it just falls outside the top five. What about you, Jay? What did you think of Chris Cornell's effort? I personally didn't like Andy, but it's not the weakest song in the franchise for me. But I've put Chris Cornell in at 15. So he is sandwiched between Nobody Does It Better from The Spiral of Me and the Doctor No James Bond theme by Monty Norman and John Barry. I... I think I've said before, Andy, I prefer the kind of ballads, classic kind of song. So, you know, listeners, look on our website for the, the rankings. But when you look at my rankings, and I'm just looking at Andy's, I think Andy's is the same as well, very similar. A lot of the films that we've recently ranked or reviewed, the songs appear in the near the bottom of our tables. Andy has scored this one differently to me. But I think for me, this period of Bond songs have been the weakest in the franchise so far. But for me, Chris Cornell's song is better than the ones that we've had in the um, the majority of the Pierce Brosnan films. So we do we do have a bit of a differ 
different opinion here, Mandy. So moving on, the opening credits. So as as we mentioned at the beginning of the pod, we've got Bond appearing in the credits throughout. We've got cards, fight scenes, silhouettes of Bond fighting, various different card decks, you know, with hearts, clubs, diamonds, etc. Bond um, bullet holes making a 007. Um, and as we mentioned before, no sexy dancing women. For me, I thought it was a weak entry, Andy. It wasn't the worst. So I put it in 13th. So unlucky for some, but it's, I just didn't really think, you know, considering they rebooted the franchise, I didn't think this was that great compared to some of the opening credits we've had in the the Brosnan era. You know, I've, I've really liked the Brosnan opening credits, as I've mentioned, you know, in the previous episodes. What about you, Andy? Did you place it higher than 13th? I do go slightly higher than 13th. I put this in an 8, um, sandwiched between On a Majesty's Secret Service and Licence to Kill. I, I liked the fact that they went a slightly different direction, because obviously they're taking the Bond franchise in a different direction, but I don't think they went far enough with it. If you're going to go brand new, go all out, I think with the song choice, it's unlike any other Bond song. They've definitely take the, taken this in a in a very radical direction, for better or worse. They've they've completely overhauled what a typical Bond song sounds like, in my opinion. With the credits, they went a little bit in a different direction, but I didn't think they went far enough. So it was a solid effort, number you know, eight on the list, but but like you, I preferred the Brosnan efforts in the most part. In fact, three three of my top six are Brosnan films. Um so you know they've they've taken a slight step backwards in my opinion, but I I appreciate the effort in going somewhere slightly different with it. Now next up, this is this is where things get a bit complicated because we're on to villains next. Now we mentioned this at the the outset. There are actually eight different villains to rank. This takes the total up to seventy nine. I was really racking my brain here trying to figure out where they want to go because I want to do this exercise properly. I don't just want to pick a random number. I want to want to make sure that I think about this a lot. What it means, of course, is that if we want to talk about this, we probably need another two hours of, of podcasting. And I don't know about you, but I think I think the listeners are probably getting tired of my voice. So I'm gonna I'm gonna rattle through them fairly quickly. What I will say in summary is of the 79 entries we've got, the eight that we're putting in today are scattered throughout so i've kind of got four in the bottom half four in the top half there's not a lot of grouping together but um it's a it's a mixed bag i don't think there needed to be that many entries i'll work my way bottom to top so so of the eight i've got crat in at 72 i've got getler in at 69 would the film be any worse if they weren't in it i'm not sure uh, jumping up slightly, uh, I've got Malacca in at 50, and I've got Carlos in at 48. Strong outings for both, but not enough screen time to justify any higher, really. So that's the reason that they're kind of two-thirds of the way down. Uh, then we're moving up to Alex at the, in 37th place, so kind of mid-table. Again, a, a good, good villain, but not a lot of screen time, not... Not the main villain of the piece. 
but a, a good supporting player. Uh, I've gone with Mr. White at 30. Mr. White is an interesting character in this point, in that clearly a villain, clearly pulling the strings, but doesn't really do a lot when you don't see him a lot. But there's enough of intrigue there for me to place him relatively highly. Um, somewhat Blofeld-esque, I would say, but not quite to that stature. Um, I've then put Stephen Abano. Let me check my notes. Yes, yeah, sorry. I've then got Stephen Abano in at 25. Um, I thought he was a, quite a menacing presence on screen. And although not the main villain of the piece, clearly had some sort of hold over Le Chiffre, um, even if it was just the fact that Le Chiffre is the one that lost him the money. Um, so there, there was enough there to kind of put him in the top third of the list. Um, a really strong effort, I thought. Um, and that placed him just below Miranda Frost, incidentally. Which then leaves Le Chiffre, the main villain of the film. Very, very well played by Mads Mikkelsen. Very strong entry. For me, just outside the top ten. So I've put him in at number eleven. Um, a very, very strong villain for a debut film, I would say. That's my abridged version. I'm sure we can talk more at a later date, but Jay, what did you think of the villains from Casino Royale? Andy, I think you summarised that really well, actually. So I'm going to shoot through mine, and we don't have... I think there's... Yeah, there's one villain that we've actually placed at exactly the same spot, but otherwise there's only one villain that is in a different slot compared to the well there's two technically but we pretty much ranked them very similar but i think you summarize it really well there actually andy so i'm going to skim through mine Krat at 72 and getler at 67 obano at 60 i agree andy very menacing but he has limited screen time but and therefore that's why Carlos is only at 52 as well so that you know they both have a fight scene with Bond but for me they, they don't get enough screen time or necessarily the build up before the, the fight with Bond Alex is in at 48 and Malenko, Malaka was in, is in at 44 like you, I, I think you you could the producers, directors could have easily cut two or three from these villains, and the film wouldn't really have missed out. And I agree, Andy, with you what you were saying about Mr. White. So I put Mr. White in at twenty eight. So I I agree. He's he's obviously a villain. He's been teased in this film, so you're going to see more of him in later films. So that's why I put him at twenty eight. Now. Le Chiffre was in at number 11 for you and I put him in at 18. So for me, he potentially could have been higher, but for the way he died, I think he was dispatched very quickly by Mr. White and also just before Mr. White dispatched of Le Chiffre, Le Chiffre was pleading to say basically he'd, he'd, money, he'd get the money back so for me his kind of 
the, the the gravitas isn't there for me. You know, he he wasn't the. He is obviously the main villain in this film, but the fact that he he showed weakness and he was scared of another villain, in Mister White, knocked him down a few spots. Mads Mads Mikkelsen obviously is a brilliant actor, and I think he did really well. But that's why he wasn't higher than me. If that makes sense, Andy, in terms of Lashifa. Indeed, good summary there, Jay. A lot of a lot of villains to talk about, isn't there? There is, and I agree, Andy. I Andy, before we move on, I just want to say, you know, Krat in this film, the the bloke that has a skinhead. He doesn't do he he doesn't really do anything, but throughout the film, it seemed that he was basically the the primary henchman of Lashifa. So I was kind of expecting the fight scene between him and Bond at some point, and it never happened. So it's like you could have easily got rid of that character. He's he's there to look menacing, mm. as opposed to be menacing, isn't he? Yeah. So I was a bit disappointed that he, he didn't get to shine. Um, no pun there for being bored or anything. So moving on into movies, I've obviously mentioned... 8 out of 10. So where where does that land? So for me, it goes in at 4th position. We're not having any tied um, films. So Casino Royale has 8 out of 10, same as On a Majesty's Secret Service, from Washer We Love and GoldenEye. So I'll put Casino Royale smack in the middle between From Washer We Love and GoldenEye. Therefore, Goldfinger remains my number 1 at 9 out of 10. It's a very strong film. A very strong opening with Daniel Craig, and when you look at Goldeneye, had the same ranking and Pierce Brosnan opening film. So the producers have really done well, and Martin Campbell as well, the director of both those films. Two strong entries there, both in my top five films so far of the franchise. the The only reason it's not higher is the 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 love interest between him and Vesper. The fact that Bond is willing to give up his career after meeting this woman and at the beginning of the film he he, he I can't remember exact the exact words that he uses with M, but he's happy to manipulate women, married women to get his way, and then he comes across Vespa. They're falling in love within, you know, the two hours, twenty four minutes that we we have in this film. So for me the, the, I I ranked it down because of that. Because on Her Majesty's Secret Service, Andy, which obviously has a, a love interest and he obviously gets married, you have those timeout scenes, you know, where you can kind of say it's building that relationship, whereas the, the Vesper and Bond bit is all happening within a few days, you know, because of losing the money and Lashifa needs to get the money. So it, it seems to happen... I would say maybe in a seven-day window. It's, you know, the whole the whole film, and therefore you don't get all that build-up. So that's the reason why it, I didn't score it higher, because I don't want people to have a moan at me, Andy, on social media, because obviously it's a very good film, and I'm not scoring it higher, but that's that's the negative, negative thing for me. What about you, Andy? You obviously gave it the ranking earlier, but where does that rank? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting point you make about the the love interest and the comparison with Honor Majesty's Secret Service which I'll, I'll touch on in a moment but for me this was slam dunk number one best Bond film 
up to this point. I absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved it at the time. And all these years later, I still absolutely love it. It was a near-perfect film for me. And uh, Goldfinger set the standard, remained in the top spot for a long, long time. But for me, this one edged it. And uh, really, you know, just blew me away when I saw it. And it still holds up today. Going back to your point around the the love interest and the, the speed in which they fall in love and the... Uh, what that causes Bond to do. It's a fair point that you have. It's difficult for me to challenge that. Um, What I would say, though, and what makes it different for me, is that with George Lazerby's Bond, he was already established as Bond, and it was a continuation of what Connery had done up to that point. Whereas what I think this does for Craig is, because it is a reboot and we're getting Bond from the beginning... I think this adds that layer of understanding why, of why Bond is the way he is. In that he's had his heart broken, so from now on he's going to have that cold exterior and he's going to be a bit more mindful. At least that's that's what I think up to this point. So I, I quite liked that element of it. You know, the kind of the, the arrogance at the start, there's no way he's going to fall in love and he's... He's all about the mission, but then someone, you know, breaks down his barriers and breaks his heart. So then it turns him into the, the cold hard bastard that he becomes. So I, I thought it worked quite well, but it's, uh, it's interesting how you interpreted it, and certainly one, I wouldn't argue with because I think it's, it's a very valid point you make there. Uh, the next topic, is, how the movie's ranked by actor. Of course, this is Craig's debut, so it's in the number one spot for the time being, so we'll discuss that in more detail over the coming weeks as he adds more to his resume. So that brings us on to the last rating, and maybe some people say this is the most important one, along with the films. Now, I'm going to go first, and this might surprise people. There is a logic to this, but then some people that are paying attention will come back to me and say, well, you didn't do this for Pierce Brosnan. And I will hold my hands up and say, no, I did not do this for Pierce Brosnan. However, the the ranking for me, for Daniel Craig, so we've had all six actors now. And, you know, things might change, you know, as we watch the remaining Daniel Craig films. Potentially, he can go up or down, depending on where we, we rank. We're not saying this is the final position for the actor. This is based on the, the you know, the film that we've being introduced and how they perform in the, the remaining films. So for me, I'll put him in fourth place. Now, he's between Roger Moore and Timothy Dalton. So my, just to recap the six places, now we've got all six actors. I've got Sean Connery at number one, Pierce Brosnan, Roger Moore, Daniel Craig, Timothy Dalton, Charles Lazenby. Now, Andy, my logic, my flawed logic is... I didn't put Daniel Craig in higher just because he's done one film. However, I did Pierce, I did put Pierce Brosnan in at number two after one film. However, I want to see more of Daniel Craig before I'm moving up or down. Like I said earlier at the very beginning of the podcast, I've only seen this film twice and I've only seen the other ones once each and I don't want to do a disservice to Roger Moore 
by putting him higher than Roger Moore at this stage. So I'm not saying I'm set in stone in fourth place, but that was my logic. You know, because I said, I can't, I, I, Andy, I, I can't even remember the plots of the other films that are coming up in the next few episodes. So that's why I'm really fuzzy with Daniel Craig at the moment. So I didn't want to base it on, I'm going to put him in, say, higher than, say, Roger Moore, Pierce Brosnan at this stage. Just because, you know, we've rewatched them. So Roger Moore, Pierce Brosnan films are really fresh in my mind. So that's the logic there that I'm coming with. So, Andy, so that's my, you know, fourth place, Daniel Craig. What about you? Where did you rank Daniel Craig? Yeah, this was a tough one for me. And this may, may surprise people or it may not, but I put him straight in at number one, which is quite the bold statement after just one outing as Bond. And, it, and you know, I was torn between, do I go one or two? I think he's already, for me, established himself as a better Bond than Brosnan. So he was always going to be top two. And he can move down. You know, we're, we're open to that movement into, you know, if the next films and don't live up to the standard of Casino Royale, we can absolutely move him down. But I just thought the way he commanded the screen as Bond, and I think what it what he did was he showed all sides. It was almost like a best of. He had the Connery elements in terms of the sophistication and the one-liners and the physicality. He had the smoothness of a, of a Roger Moore. And I actually think, as, as much as I've got Dalton down at the bottom end of the rankings, he did, he did do a lot of the, th- the things that Dalton tried to do he just did them so much better than Dalton and I think by the end of the film not only was the film tremendous it was hard to see anyone else as James Bond I think he did that good a job in the debut that it was um it was always going to be top two and I think I think back to Connery like you said fresh in the memory fantastic Bond the quintessential Bond in many ways but Craig Craig just snatched that mantle from him with with one fell swoop. So for me, he's already number one. Whether he stays there remains to be seen, of course. But that brings us to the end of another episode of The Rating Room. It's quite sad, isn't it, to be ending an episode. I always, always enjoy these weekly conversations that we have. I could do with like a, a modicum of consolation now, really. Um, what would be another way of saying that? Um, maybe a quantum of solace, you might say. Uh, which, of course, you'll hear more about next week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you soon. Well, that's this week's episode done. We hope you enjoyed it. Special thanks to the band Sugar Tongue for the theme tune to The Rating Room. You can find them on all the usual social media channels. And be sure to check out their song, The System. Available now on Spotify. You can find and message us on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram by searching The Rating Room. You'll find all our social media links on our website, theratingroom.com, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Or feel free to drop us an email at theratingroom at gmail.com. Goodbye, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week, right here on The Rating Room. (laughs) 